Welcome back to Price Plow. We are so honored to have Doug Kalman here. He is a clinical associate professor at Nova Southeastern University, uh, an ISSN co-founder. And Doug, we had you on, not on the podcast, but we have a video together. I'll link to it in the show notes from forever ago where we weighed, or you used a bomb calorimeter to tell us that BCAs do have calories. That was the first time we did some stuff together. And so we uh, right. spoke at Supply Side West 2023, and we're like, we got to get you on this podcast. So welcome to episode 120. I understand that you were actually in Ultimate Fighter season 21. You're like a performance coach inside. So the topic of this is first, I'd like you to introduce yourself, but then I'd like to get into some of the like the, the diet, the fight prep diet stuff that you are uh, working on and some of the stuff you've pioneered, especially since Ben's been getting into BJJ. So thanks for joining us. Really excited for this one. My pleasure. It's uh, very much my pleasure. I don't want to go against Ben in BJJ. But um, I, I'm very happy to hear that he's involved with a, a great combat sport, great uh, form of martial arts, one that I join in every now and then. I have a background as a wrestler. Uh, I wrestled most of my life, um, including, uh, you know, uh, in open tournaments when I was in my 20s. And um, so I think that BJJ is a, a great tool. And I don't think uh, one of the things I'm sorry for the uh, diatribe for a second. When you say martial arts, some people just get the impression of violence, the impression of, you know, some Kung Fu movie where it's really just you're learning more about yourself. Yeah, there's physical aspects to it and you can get hurt. You can hurt somebody, but that's never really the intent unless you have a, a different agenda than what the sport's trying to generally teach you. I, I've become obsessed with I like what you're saying about finding out about yourself and also the community aspect. Um, Mike and I traveled up to Maine a couple months ago, and we got the opportunity to take a class with Jocko's uh, team that uh, where they have their HQ. They all have a school where they train together. And uh, Mike and I travel all over the country, and uh, you know we go to the gym and we work out with people, we lift, but uh, we got to sit on the, on the mats and roll with a bunch of new friends that we hadn't really met before. And there was a moment where we looked around and we're like, these guys have become our friends so much quicker than if we had just been like lifting weights or talking at a bar. And it, there's a this is incredible community aspect about learning that together, which I, I've there, enjoyed a lot. There's even a reason why after, you know, matches, you know, people tend to become somewhat friendly with each other because of the mutual respect that's usually earned. And um, because you know what you just went through together. And it's easy to watch from the outside or watch on TV and say, how didn't he get out of that? Or why didn't she move? Or how do you not see that coming? But that's because we're watching it on TV. And when things happen in real time, versus television time it's a lot different um uh, you know a, a lot different somebody could grab your arm right ben and put you in a, a, a an arm bar in milliseconds and and but on tv it looks like they've been working for it for a long time but they just set you up that's all they did you know yeah. um i've had the pleasure of rolling with people like uh, gilbert burns Tahino, uh, a ufc fighter a former uh, um uh, title competitor um, and, and currently rehabbing from uh, a shoulder injury in his last fight from Bilal, uh, Muhammad, and, and a whole slew of other uh, UFC and Bellator fighters. And it's always been a, I don't want to say a pleasure to get my butt kicked, but a pleasure to learn a different science. That's what it is. It's a science. 
Awesome. Speaking of science, though, one part of my intro I forgot to mention. Um, I had to look. We have cited your last name in 217 of our blog posts. So I'd like to thank you for our research. A lot of it is with nitrosity, and let's let's be open about that. But your your last name shows up in like seven percent of our published blog posts right now. So thank you for all the work you've done as well. So I'm I'm humbled by that, and uh, honestly, you know, just to take a serious step for a second, uh, I started out my career, you know, a long time ago, but working in patient care. And it wasn't really, it was an interest of mine, but I started out first in a laboratory of genetics and metabolism at Rockefeller University Hospital in, in New York, which by the way, the NIH is actually based upon the Rockefeller University Hospital and system because uh, it predates NIH. But nonetheless, I, I was privileged to be there while there was 19 Nobel Prize winners on campus for various aspects of medicine and science and got to learn firsthand, literally firsthand, um, something that ties you and, 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 and me together, which is bomb calimetry. Because one of my duties uh, as an intern, and I spent you know, a couple of months living, uh, living uh, on campus and working whatever hours of the night or morning they needed, but was uh, teaching the staff how to use a bomb calimeter. And uh, it was cool for me as, a, uh, as a, somebody that was in between uh, uh, right below senior year in college to have this internship, but learn, here's what you learn in a book and here's what is actually happens in real life. And then it translated to when I was working in the, what I'll just call the analytical biochemistry lab, where we would process all of the human samples that were up for various studies, that I got to see how intricate, if I want to look at what, um, like LDL1, LDL2, like I had a job separating out LDL1, LDL2, LDL3, VLDL1, VLDL2, like I had to chromatographically uh, se se separate them so we could measure whatever we were measuring. So it, it, got, it taught me an appreciation um, for how science and nutrition can tie together, how they interact. And I've always been an athlete. So while I was at Rockefeller University, I went to their gym, uh, of course, every day and, and, uh, and, and got other people into weightlifting, running and, and, and sorts of things. And, and um, actually got my first start working in professional sports nutrition, not too shortly thereafter with the uh, 96 Olympics. Uh, the Summer Olympics. Um, um, fortunately or unfortunately, my first experience in that was not for USA. It was working for um, uh, France. Um, but um, they're harmless and they have good cheese. Um, <laughs> no, that's totally awesome. <laughs> what, what exactly were you doing? Uh, so I was working with their track and field team, uh, working on recovery nutrition, having them understand recovery nutrition. They're coming over to the US. What is it going to be like? What's offered in the athlete's village? Uh, what do they need to acclimate to if they're going to be bring, bringing their own foods? What kind of things do they need? Um, and, you know, some of it was weight related, too, because depending upon the event, your weight affects your stride length, affects your speed, your turnover, all of that. Wow. And uh, so track and field was uh, 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 was my first. Did they uh, bring their own baguettes? <laughs> They hit. They hit me with them. They like they were a baseball bat. <laughs> awesome. So, so you, yeah, you've been around for a while. <clears throat> I'm not sure if we can do like a a full lifeline or anything. But as a co-founder of ISSN, that's a that's a conference that we're going to be attending this year and everything. Um, give us a little bit of background on the creation of that and what you do for them. Sure. So, this actually uh, circumnavigates that same era, if you will, the, the mid to late 90s, 
So in the mid to late 90s, I was also involved in publishing research studies that had to do with sports nutrition or had to do with body composition or weight loss, um, as well as uh, 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 pharmaceutical and other studies in HIV and in cancer that I worked on because I was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center during that time. But we were also then I, I, I publishing uh, Dr. Jose Antonio, who was doing a postdoctorate at that time in uh, University of North Texas at Denton, I believe. I might be wrong. No, at Galveston he was. But anyway, he was doing a postdoc and we were working on these studies together. He was a co-author. And then over a number of years, when we would go to American College of Sports Medicine, or even the American Society of Nutrition, and at that time, it was called the American Dietetic Association Conferences, whenever we submitted for talks or published and presented posters or abstracts or papers, anything to do with nutrition and sport, you were kind of uh, uh, like considered an oddball and you were told to leave and you were told that you were not going to have an academic career and you were told that this is all hogwash um but usually in more aggressive terms um <laughs> and and so i like those kind of challenges because i i also come from the mindset uh when i was younger i was also being i would say promoted or pushed by some family to maybe go into medicine instead of nutrition and and I said, no, I want to use nutrition to change the way that medicine thinks about nutrition, right? Uh, and I'd rather, you know, go the doctoral route and a registered dietitian route and see how I could change from there. Economically, probably going physician would have been better. Um, but train uh, true to, to, authentic, to authentic self, you know, I chose the route that I did. So in that, in the, it was literally there was fist fights at the American College of Sports Medicine annual conference, I think it was around 2002, uh, because uh, Dr. Antonio and Dr. Jeff Stout were giving a talk about uh, ergogenic AIDS and people in the audience and the president of ACSM at that time, they were all like, it was the wildest thing. It was a Jerry Springer show at an academic conference. And so after that experience and, and Joey also having the chair of his department and I think by that time he was at the University of Delaware as a professor, um, tell him, listen, you can't do any more of this supplement research. We won't allow it. It's not legitimate. It, it's bringing us bad press. And so, of course, you know, Joey moved on because tell Joey no, and he's going to, there was no reason not to. But anyway, uh, so we, we got frustrated at why is there a ceiling on science? And why is that nutritional science that's using the same randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled designs, using the same um, um, statistical principles, the same IRBs, the same ethic, uh, ethical concerns written into the protocols, not considered the same or given at least an iota of respect? So now come 2003, uh, literally, there was met that by that time, Joey and Jeff Stout were working for GNC, Royal Numico, Metrex, which was all one family at the time. And I was the chair of um, the sports nutrition work group of the American uh, of the American Dietetic Association. So Metrex sponsored a sport nutrition workshop that we were having as part of the annual uh, uh, ADA conference, which is known as FENCI now. But and at, after we had day one and we went to dinner at that dinner, there may have been some anti-hydration drinks that were passed around wine, alcohol, right? That's the only thing that is actually a diuretic. Any other liquid hydrates you, um, doesn't take away from hydration. So 
Sue Kleiner actually screamed across the table, like to Joey and to myself, why don't we just start our own academic society, nonprofit, because we have such resistance in all of these groups. They'll take sponsorship money, they'll, but they poo-poo it. They, they, they will t talk you down and say, there's no academic future. There's no legitimacy in this. But, and so essentially that's how we started. There was five of us that, that uh, uh, you know, got together at, and then followed up at an ACSM conference, actually. Uh, the five of us met again uh, for sushi in San Francisco at American College of Sports Medicine and made all the paperwork final. And that now we're in going in our 21st year. And um, the ISSN is the still the only nonprofit academic society dedicated to sport nutrition. The American College of Sports Medicine has expanded their scope to, to a little bit more sport nutrition. And so have others, but there's none that's dedicated to human sport <clears throat> nutrition. It's all preclinical or, or still a little bit or um, what I would call um, uh, commentary editorials that are negative in tone that have a bias to start with about the industry or about dietary supplements or written by those people that don't understand regulations, pharmaceutical or dietary supplement. And we have these problems that permeate. So uh, I'm not sure if that answered any question, but. Awesome. No, well, I do have to back up. Okay, so why are there fist fights? <laughs> I got to go back. Why is there a fist fight happening at a conference in 2002? Does this have something to do with creatine? I'm guessing that is where yes. a lot of this is. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, creatine, um, uh, creatine is, is the, the, I don't want my terminology to be wrong here. It's the most legitimized, yeah. if you will, dietary ingredient, right? Mm -hmm. um, and because only if you're going by sheer number of studies and sheer number of studies that have found positive impact, whether it's been for a physiologic or a biochemical or performance, right? There's not really been negative. Um, and, and, um, there's not really been negative. So, uh, creatine was one that uh, Joey and Jeff were discussing and there was a number of published studies and people in the audience were in disbelief. Remember, this is the same organization that around the same era was also telling sports medicine physicians and any members that anabolic steroids are not performance enhancing. They don't do anything. They're good for like, you know, wasting after AIDS or wasting after cancer or, you know, uh, cachexia due to malnutrition. But they were saying they have no performance benefit, which obviously is not true. <laughs> um, there's a certain percentage of Olympians and non uh, competitors that use, but um, nonetheless, mm -hmm. so you got, uh, I don't know, there was a stigma. There was also um, an, an inflexibility and in, in, in educational curiosity, right? Because if you're able to show that if I give Ben creatine and he's able to gain one to 3% on his, uh, on his, let's say three um, RM bench press or something, right? That's objective. Right. And if I'm able to show that creatine, whether it's creatine loading or regular creatine use after a certain amount of days changes the creatine levels in your muscles by muscle biopsy, right? That gold standard technique or functional magnetic resonance uh, imaging, another way that you can measure um, creatine stores in the muscle, that's objective data. So you are there showing then how an oral performance agent affects physiology and then affects performance. And it took a long time, including still today. I think there's still an uphill battle going on to get people. See, nutrition is a science. Religion is a belief system. But people will tell you, I don't believe in what you're saying about 
nutritional science, but it's not a belief system. It's a science. And there's a hard, people have a hard time separating the two. Oh, I lost weight. So therefore I'm a weight loss expert. No, you're an expert in you. And you probably just had less calories than what you needed and lost weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been, it's been wild following the whole industry and trying to like put together a more of a unifying theory on that. But I, I think, yeah, and we episode 100 with, we just, we talked about the creatine thing and it seems like it'll never go away. It's going to be um, behind glass shelves in New York and, and there's ridiculous. more and more laws. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's just something that I think if you enter this industry on some level, you're just signing up for this fight. That's never going to end. And they're always going to be wrong. And you're always going to be right. But the, eyes of the public uh public perception it's basically like we just need generational turnover it's kind of funny like the the younger people listening to this show will not realize how crazy it was in the late 90s early 2000s with this whole creatine ordeal like what they're seeing now is like just one percent of the insanity that we saw in the mainstream media um decades ago so i mean i think but, but to to give you credit though is you and your organization and your uh your position paper position stands and everything that really pushed this forward i mean at some point like there's just an overwhelming amount of of data and research and you're behind all not behind but you're a part of a lot of it so i guess like we all owe you a big thank you like you and issn in, in totality so thanks doug well that's very appreciated on 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 everybody's behalf that's contributed to the library of science on creatine on innovations regarding creatine, including the companies that manufacture and make it, right? Because uh, otherwise then we're just talking about dried out steak or dried out uh, uh, mackerel, right? Uh, so, um, and a couple of other pieces of fish, but you know, uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, thank you. And one of the things that we, one of the reasons that we started doing ISSN position stands is because we, we internally were talking and say, Every year, there's this collective body of science that's growing surrounding sport nutrition. But let's help translate that into usable bits of information, either for athletes, coaches, interested parties, and even companies. If any, uh, how do I say this without being insulting? Any half-wit formulator can read a bunch of ISSN position stands and be able to formulate some basic sport nutrition and other products and have substantiation and have all the references they need for structure function claims and everything else. So, um, but we, the, the idea is to make information that that's then translatable to the community. And that community is more than just academics. It's, you know, again, like I said, the, the coaches, the athletes, people that uh, have a vested interest. Um, one thing I wanted to back up, if it's okay, Mike uh, and Ben on is, you mentioned to companies that are active uh, as like finished product companies and, and ingredient companies that the fight was, is never ending. And that is very true. Um, and there's, uh, uh, because there's always changes in administration, changes in political climates, changes in society. What's true now wasn't true when we were kids, let's say, and I think I'm older than both of you, but uh, let's say when you were kids. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you can't let your kid ride without a helmet near the school these days. Not that I, whatever. So my point that I'm bringing that uh, into is that there's a, there's a, everybody should be active, whether they're part of a trade association or on your own, at least with your own local representatives, your own state representatives, and those people that have, uh, that are supposed to have your vested interest in mind as a business, because one, there's tax 
aspects to your business that they could lobby upon uh, or you could talk to them about. There's protections. So like this New York uh, uh, law that Governor uh, Hochul, uh, Hochul um, signed into law, this bill, um, I don't see how it's ever going to be enforced or regulated or, or done um, or promulgated uh, because, for a number of reasons that have been well illustrated by, and, and discussed on your uh, podcasts and, and, and interviews and elsewhere by all of the trade organizations. And the thing that's behind that makes me nervous about it is that there seemed to be, by my monitoring at least, of uh, advocacy activity on the state level, companies that operated in, that, in any state, whether it was California, Massachusetts, New York, not actually really being that active with their own political environment that's now going to impact their ability to sell an ingredient potentially or make a claim or, uh, or anything, you know, regarding this foolish law. And I will tell you, as somebody that's done work in eating disorders, um, amongst the professional athletes that I've worked with, uh, just because uh, I have a variety, um, I don't know, 16 or so years, I've worked with the USTA, the United States Tennis Association. So almost every major, almost every major tournament on the female side, Wimbledon, French Open, Australian Open, US Open, uh, any US female that's been in the final four has been somebody that I'm either working with at the time or have worked over their career. So um, this translates to everybody. And you're going to say like somebody can't go to Massachusetts and buy protein with creatine in it because it may help muscle or vitamin D because vitamin D can help muscle as you age, right? There's a lot of hormonal, it's a hormone. There's a lot of effects of vitamin D. So like what, if this is just uh, um, idiotic to be blunt, but also at the same time, we need companies, not just consumers, but companies that operate in the states where these laws are being promulgated to get active. Um, whether it's through your trade association or, or on your own or through another organization helping, but it, it really, cause it can impact their bottom line and impacts actually. One of the things that scares me is here you have state over-regulation about public health um, or public health concerns. And I mentioned the eating disorders before because uh, I've done freedom of, of information searches of FDA and I've done, there's nothing in uh, the adverse events reports regarding dietary supplements being related to eating disorders. There is one report, literally, and I published it on my LinkedIn page about a month ago, that's in the FD, in CIFSAN's uh, um, uh, CARES database on eating disorders. And it happened to be a 76-year-old woman that unfortunately had um, Citrical was the product that she was taking and it got stuck in her esophagus. And so she ended up having to go to the hospital to get it removed. And for a few days, she had loss of appetite, which the hospital coded as anorexia, right? Um, um, that's not an eating disorder. That is, unfortunately, a situation where a pill got stuck in um, an older woman's throat. That's not causing right. an eating disorder. To, that, back, uh, yeah, to back that up, I mean, the reason that Doug's talking about this, for those listening don't understand, is that when some of the laws are created in order to, like, not ban, but, like, put behind a shelf or be put behind glass a weight loss aid, they, the, the justification that these legislators are trying to use is that these weight loss supplements um, lead to eating disorders is kind of what their argument is. And there is literally zero substantiation for that, at, like, on any level. 
And so that's kind of, but that's the hysteria that makes headlines. And so people read the first headline, they don't always read the retort. And the retort is, no, that's not even close to being true. So that's why, that, that's why Doug's bringing this up. And I just want to explain that to the yeah. audience who doesn't know. Um, so Thank yeah, thanks. I didn't, I will have to link to your, to your LinkedIn. Um, we'll get that in the show notes. Cause I am kind of curious to, to see that report. And re- well, there's and, uh, been a couple of things that I, I've published regarding eating disorders on my LinkedIn. Um, you know, one was uh, the Freedom of Information Act search of FDA database. Another one was a recent study that looked at um, genetics and eating disorders. And that showed about up to 58% of eating disorders are actually genetic, genetically tied, being passed down from grandparents, parents to you. So um, if you have a genetic predisposition to an eating disorder, is that now different than if you have a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's? And somehow this dietary supplement does not act as a switch to turn that on, not at all, right? So when you also look at eating disorders, especially in adolescence, that's where they're pushing this in teenagers, these restrictions. Um, The top three supplements that are used by adolescents are multivitamin, vitamin C, and vitamin D, according to NHANES data, our own government data, okay? So not weight loss, not whatever, not not even creatine, okay? uh, so these are wellness products, if you will. These are fill in the gap. Most of us don't eat five to nine servings of fruits and veggies. Certainly most teenagers probably have more French fries than they do broccoli, you know, um, sorry to stereotype, but it's, you know, part of that thing. But, you know, we need to be aware of misinformation and help correct it because people with eating disorders, actually, it's classified by every major medical association, every nutrition association and the international classification of diseases as a mental health disorder. Because the two number one, sorry, but the number, the two highest comorbidities with eating disorders are depression and anxiety. And then secondary to that, unfortunately, there is some that develop substance abuse disorder. None of the substances of abuse are dietary supplements. They're either hard drugs or laxatives. Dietary supplements are not right. connected. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry for uh, babbling on this, but I'm passionate <laughs> about the misinformation that's being put out by Harvard, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, the striped group at Harvard, uh, as, as well as by you know others that just decide not to read beyond the headline. Well, yeah. Stay tuned to Price Spot. We are going to uh, we are going to be covering potential potential lawsuits that are going to hopefully happen. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, all right. So on the on the on the on the topic of eating, Doug, UFC 21. What do you eat before a fight? How does how does the nutrition go? I guess maybe back it up. Like, just tell us about your experience on the show in general, and then um, I'd like to get into like some of the strategies that you like to employ for a fighter who's trying to make weight. Usually, I assume and. Um, and so, yeah, so tell us about the show. How did that go? Uh, well, uh, if we could drop back for a second. Um, m- I was a UFC fan, like many other people at the time. You know, we're talking about 2012, 2013, now about. And uh, I, had, I worked at a place called Miami Research Associates, and I also had a practice within there, a nutrition and pharmaceutical research group. And so one day, a gentleman has an appointment with me, and I give you his name. His name is Glenn Robinson. You guys probably wouldn't know him. But Glenn was the founder of Jocko, and he was the money behind the Black Zillions. He was referred to me for his own personal nutrition. I helped him with whatever uh, his issue was. He saw all my fancy testing equipment, DEXA, metabolic cart, and everything else. 
And he, uh, after a couple of two months of seeing me for appointments, he said, do you know the UFC? And I said, uh, well, yeah, on TV, I go to the ale house and I watch it like everybody else. And, um, uh, so Glenn said, listen, I, uh, I own a team called the Black Sillians. I have some fighters. I want to send three fighters for you to start working with. I, I know that you oversee um, the sport nutrition for 17 teams at Florida International University. I also was doing that. And um, so let me send you three fighters. So the first three fighters he sent me to work with uh, were Vitor Belfort, Rashad Evans, and Anthony Rumble Johnson. May Rumble rest in peace. And so I started working with uh, all of them uh, uh, at different levels for their individual nutrition habits, making weight, uh, base, uh, what I would call base nutrition. And then um, leading into fight week and fight week nutrition. And so after, I don't know, a month, two months of working with them, Glenn one day calls me and says, hey, listen, uh, you know the show Ultimate Fighter? I said, yeah. He said, we're going to do something different with it. I'm in talks with Dana. And um, instead of being groups where they put team versus team, we're going to do gym versus gym. So it'll be Black Zillions versus America Top Team. Now, to let you know, Black Zillions and America Top Team, before they were either one of those, all the guys used to train together. Uh, and then there was some falling out in between the owners, in between the fighters. And a, a bunch of the Brazilians and others went to Jaco, which was a beautiful gym in Boca Raton training facility, and others stayed at America Top Team. And so a hatred began, uh, a, a, fe uh, a feud, if you will. And then so... Uh, Glenn asked me, would you like to be one of the coaches on Ultimate Fighter Season 21? And um, I said, sure. How does it work? He said, well, for the next, once we start for six weeks, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we film. Uh, everybody lives in a house. You know, everything that you see on the show. And um, which was a lot different than working with individual fighters. Because for the show, one of the things that I was in charge of or helped work with was stocking the food for each of the black zillion athletes at the house. Unfortunately, when you're at the house, the, the kitchen is open to everybody. So the other people like to sabotage your food so they could screw with your head. So they get ahead and you don't. It's childish, but people do that. So, but that was part of my job was uh, not only for what they would have and what they would be cooking and eating every day, but then what we were doing, if you were one of the fighters, it was two fights per week. If you were one of the fighters that was fighting and, uh, you know, that week, uh, because we had to make weight. We had a sauna in the house. We had everything in the house, every, a full gym in the house, two full gyms for the fighters, um, as well as the, our own gym and, um, uh, starting to work with these fighters and putting together nutrition plans. And, and ha here's the biggest thing, the biggest battle I had initially. And I don't know, Ben, if you come across this when you talk to people just about nutrition habits is, People that were looking to cut weight, looking to lose weight or wanting to get in better physical shape would tell me that they wanted to look like the guy that was on the cover of like Men's Health um, or, you know, some type of fitness magazine. And I would end up asking them, well, are you competing to be on a cover or are you competing to be able to go 25 minutes hard? Right. And yeah. I remember there's a, a pro UFC yeah. fighter one day that um, I'm, I'm at practice on a on a on a Friday morning. Right which is usually MMA grappling uh, practice. And I don't want to give his name, but he comes to me. He's like, Doug, Doug, I, I worked with him doing his nutrition. Guess what I did last night? And I'm like, go to the movies. He said, no, um, I did a 10 mile run. And I said, are you training for a marathon? 
<laughs> and he said, no. And he said, but that was good, right? I said, not at all good. Uh, and I'm not the strength coach or conditioning coach, but yeah. I, I, um, that's Dr. Corey Peacock, uh, who's fabulous if you ever want to have a strength coach on. But I, I said to him, no, you're, you're, if you're training for a marathon or a 10, or a 10 mile run, that's great. But if you're training for three, five minute rounds, that's absolutely just going to hurt you. Yep. You know, because, and, th and then I told him an adage of something that I was taught, which may or may not be true. But if you're into um, sport nutrition, historically, there was a gentleman that was known as Dr. Kenneth Cooper, uh, founder of the Cooper Clinic uh, uh, in Dallas, a famed cardiac center, published a lot of cardiovascular fitness related. The military uses his test as part of their fitness test. They used to call it the Cooper test. It's running up and down stairs a bunch of times uh, and looking at heart rate recovery. But one day I'm having lunch with him and he's like, and I'm interviewing him for a magazine I used to write for, uh, one of the muscle magazines in the, in the early 90s I used to write for. And, and he said to me, and I was asking him about marathon running and distance running. He said, Doug, anybody that's running longer than three miles, unless they're training for a specific reason, they're running away, for, away from something. They're not running for fitness. <laughs> and I said, hmm, there might be some truth to that, right? Some people exercise away their demons. Some people confront it other ways. I like totally that off topic. I apologize. Yeah, no, so. no, no that that makes sense. So, um, but in, in general, you were you cooking the food for them on the show, or were you? No. So uh, yes and no. I, I, I've done both, but no, I'm I'm not a cook, uh, although I can cook. Um, uh, for the show, they were responsible in what they had to prepare for themselves. I was responsible for making sure the items I wanted them to eat were there and explaining to them how to make what I was suggesting by written recipes and other stuff, um, as well as pictures and when to have what. We were also allowed uh, dietary supplements, uh, of course. Uh, I shouldn't say of course, but I will tell you. And so those, uh, you know, we had that were also a part of the house, but most of the athletes kept them in their room by their bed because they did not want other people taking their mm. creatine or their beta alanine. Um, or their uh, uh, whatever else, we're, multivitamins, fish oils, uh, whatever else we were using too. Okay. So let's, I mean, Ben, if you don't mind, can we use you as an example? Can we run yeah. through like, we got six weeks. I don't know what weight Ben's at, but let's try to get them down to whatever. The well, so, 220. Like, yeah. what, are, where are you, what are we doing here? I think it's a great idea to talk about, like, like to put it like kind of concrete. Cause I, I want to like, kind of, I, I want to find out like, what kind of things does Doug like, like, like what, where's your philosophy at? Like what just, I, instead of just kind of poking questions, like to give you maybe an idea, like how you would use me, like I'm 240 pounds, six foot three. Um, at 240, I look good. I move good. I think I move good a little bit better at 230. But if I start to drop below 230, I kind of feel weak. Um, and I think one of my main strengths is my, my strength, literally coming from a powerlifting background. Um, the, for the local tournament, the weight class is uh, 225. So I would have to weigh in there. Um, but I drop weight pretty easily. I, I you know, I, I have a pretty good gas tank. I can get in a sauna. I can do that kind of stuff. Just general template. How do you like, I, I weight train four days a week. I'll do jujitsu four to five times a week. Now, you know, it, it's interesting in the jujitsu world, the top jujitsu artist I've worked with is a gentleman named Mike Musa, Musa Chemi. I am Mike, fascinated you, by that then because he, Mikey is awesome. He has and, a very interesting philosophy on diet. Uh, yes, he does. And he was fun to work with. I worked with him for a long time until he moved to, to Singapore and, and, and Thailand to train. 
uh, uh, as well as uh, his sister on and off, um, and who's amazing herself as an yeah. athlete, and she's a full-time uh, lawyer. So um, uh, on, on top of that. Now, getting to your question, this brings me back to the show and brings me back to working with Rashad, Vitor, uh, 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 Rumble, and anybody else. I'm a scientist. I like to start objective. Ben, I like you. I don't know you. I don't know your body. I'm not, so I need objective data. Yeah. So typically, we're going to do a body composition test. We're going to look at how much muscle you have, how much fat you have. We're also going to do hydration testing. We're going to look at how many pounds of water your body holds. We're going to look at what percent hydration your muscle, your cells are as intracellular versus extracellular. And then as we're able to know this, and as we also look, and we're also going to put you through a, um, some other type of physiologic testing where we're able to see what kind of calories does your body like to burn, not only at rest, but at various levels of physical stress, right? Physical activity. You're mostly in an anaerobic sport. It's a lot different uh, than, you know, running uh, distance. So um, anaerobic sports are mostly going to consume carbohydrates for energy. So we're going to want to know what's the carbohydrate portion of your diet. But I also, through the testing, I want to know your metabolic needs. How many calories a day does his body require? How much is he burning extra from all of his training? Okay. And then what is the afterburn of that? There's two things that we get afterburn for lack of a scientific term, scientific term, depending upon the intensity that you train, the elevated caloric burn that you have as a result of training in and of itself is elevated for a short term or all the way up to 24 or more hours, depending upon the intensity and duration. So those are extra calories that are being burned anyway, that are useful for somebody that is looking to lower weight, lower weight, lower weight, you know, for making weight. Then we also look at well, when you're at your higher levels of activity, how long can you stay there before your body taps out, right? So we are able to see how hard you can push yourself and how long. So then this way in your training, your performance coaches know how to get you to have a better gas tank. Mm -hmm. You said that you have a good gas tank. So we'll like to test your gas tank by a VO2, a VO2 peak test. And I'm looking at the difference in between your anaerobic threshold and the time that you quit. That time in between the anaerobic threshold uh, and the time that you quit is when you're burning uh, usually purely carb or more, or more carbs than your body can burn per second per minute. And we are able to see your gas tank and change your training. And we're able to also learn your body's preferred fuel source. And from that, we actually modify your diet. So all of these tools, your body composition, knowing how much water you hold at rest, know much your hydration state after a typical training day. One of the things that we did is we had, a, we had a, you know, metabolic carts could be portable. Uh, we had uh, ultrasounds that are portable. We had hydration testing that was portable. We were able to test athletes everywhere in the field or, you know, uh, in the locker room or at the physiology laboratory at Nova Southeastern University. And I like to have data. So Ben, you know, working with you, I would want to know more about your own diet, more about your physical activity, collect the subjective data, look at the time you have. And then one of the things that I like people to understand, right? And cutting to the chase when it comes to any performance sport. Dep uh, when you're cutting typically 4% or more body weight acutely, and then have to perform in 24 to 30 hours, you're not always allowing enough time for cellular recovery. You may regain body weight, 
but your cells haven't recovered from the damage that they went through through caloric restriction, over-exercise, sucking out water through a variety of means, whether it's saunas, whether it's hot baths, whether it's diuretics, whether it's a combo, um, and, and, and other things that people do to make weight. And typically, after you weigh in, you're going to have 24 to 30 hours to start your tournament. Some tournaments, um, I was a college wrestler. We would be able to weigh in the night before, tournament starting the next day. Sometimes it was you weigh in and then your match could be an hour later. So you have to really modify uh, you know, that. So when I'm working with somebody like Mikey and he was doing tournaments that were day after day and he would have to hit uh, 131 or whatever weight class we were working on, we would, we would have very specific meals afterwards uh, and the morning of. And most of the people that I work with, even currently, most of the fighters can't believe that I have them eat the day of weigh-ins. Right? What do you mean? And uh, yeah, well, it doesn't matter what the food is, but I have them eat. And I have them eat all the way up while they're cutting weight. No, there's no reason to starve yourself. You need to feed yourself a little bit. right? So you always need some spark going. And the idea is to minimize the amount of catabolism that occurs due to overtraining, overreaching, undersleeping, overstress, um, um, modulating your own fluid intake, cutting your own calories. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and now if um, uh, it's a crazy world, let's say Ben was a female, right? Um, and um, I bring this up because the other wrench that's thrown in, well, uh, if a female is, uh, you know, premenopausal and having normal menstrual cycle, the luteal phase versus follicular phase affects your ability to store carbohydrates differently, affects your ability to burn fat differently, affects your exercise endurance differently, affects your, um, my doors closed, so my wife won't hear, mood states differently. Um, uh, she's Jamaican, so um, she's fast. Um, uh, but I'm being serious here that that has to be taken into context also when working with the female athlete of um, mm. whether she's having normal menses and where she is in her uh, um, a period to how it's going to affect the ability to, to modulate diet and make weight and what you can and cannot do. So one of the yeah. sorry to interrupt. So with Ben's situation, I, I did the math. He's looking to cut 6.25 percent. Is that a bad strategy in and of itself because he wants to go from 240 to 225? Are we starting at a bad place already? No. Okay. Well, we, I don't think that we're starting at a bad place. Again, without knowing Ben, without right. having a, a Dex or some other gold standard measure of how much fat he's holding, how much muscle he's holding, right? Um, I've seen you, Ben. You're you're a leaner guy. You're not a you know you're not a rotund being. So um, <laughs> yeah, I've done. A, I've I've cut 237 to 220 before for powerlifting meets. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned over what period, because I like to work over time. I like to have my athletes within five to seven pounds, seven days out. Yeah, that was so this way they don't really have to do much fight week. Yeah. No, does that always happen? No, you're absolutely correct. It was over the course of like four weeks. I, I, I probably was uh high two twenties the week of, you know, so I, I, it was easy for me to, to do that with just kind of water manipulation, a little bit of sodium. It was, it was easy at that point at this point in my life. I have a much different philosophy when it comes to diet. I am much, much more on your side of fueling and eating. I, I would, I would rather fuel myself incredibly well into and, and keep the food up going into the competition. I also have a different level of performance. When I was powerlifting, I had to squat, bench, and deadlift. I have to be incredibly like mentally aware now. I have to be fast. I have to be able to react, and it's just a different type of performance now. Um, it is. If can I add one thing, yeah, absolutely. Opposite of you. 
All right. Most of the athletes, combat fighters, and uh, meaning I've done boxing as well as, and judo as well as uh, uh, um, MMA, uh, are usually weight class athletes where they have to make weight. I've, Corey and I have also worked with heavyweights that have had to gain weight because you can weigh up to 265 for a heavyweight. You just can't be above 265. So um, they're, depending upon your length of being a UFC fan, there was a, a, a fighter uh, that I work with and that I just adore as a human and still talk to. I'm so thankful, named Stefan Struve. Uh, Stefan is seven feet tall, or just about seven feet tall. And uh, they would call him the skyscraper is his nickname. And he was, uh, uh, or is, uh, he's retired now, but a hell of a fighter. I mean, when you talk about length and reach, right, and uh, an ability to grit, I mean, he would go into Russia and go to uh, fights in Russia as on his amateur level coming up. And you got to be kind of a tough guy to, to go fight in, in, in Russia and in Dagestan and all those places. But when he first came to us was after he had some cardiac issues that took him out of the UFC for a while. And then he was cleared from a, a, um, a congenital heart issue to come back to training. And he, I think he came in uh, weighing about 225 pounds. And we uh, eventually got him up to uh, where he was uh, walking around around 275 and would have to cut 10 pounds to make the 265 weight and be happy about it. Instead of going into fights, going against guys uh, uh, that were 250 and he was weighing 225, 230, there's a, you know, there's a difference, but that was a whole nother challenge because the volume of food, the eight to 10,000 calories a day, I was trying to get him to eat because he was training twice a day. Right. And, and that's when you have that much body surface area, right. You have a lot of energy expenditure. Moving your limbs takes a lot of energy. Right. I relate. Um, I'm not seven feet tall, but I relate. <laughs> yeah. Well, my you first know, so that was a different challenge and that one was you know also helping a person balance solid food calories versus liquid food calories and why i mention this for anybody that's either using protein supplements weight gains any liquid calories even like a vitargo or a carbohydrate supplement sometimes volume of liquid as we age takes away um perceptions of hunger because of the volume of liquid. And so therefore the person actually does not eat as much food calories because they're ingesting these liquid calories and it's interfering with their want, if you will, to go have, I don't know, roast beef sandwich or whatever it might be. And so therefore you have to have more structure and uh, regiment thinking, and this is a buy-in. Food is a fuel. Food is not being used for enjoyment. This is a fuel to get you to your goal. It is not about enjoyment. Enjoy your birthday cake and then move on, right? I'm being serious here because a number of us are motivated by tastes. You guys talk about nostalgic flavors all the time and a variety of pre-workouts and other beverages. And why are they? Because it's a taste. It evokes a memory. It evokes a feeling. So, and people are like, oh, this reminds me of grandma. This reminds me of this, right? In, in your own life, right? So we have to understand that and how to utilize all of these factors in getting an athlete to realize, no, this is the kind of gas you're putting in your car now. This is not about a memory or a feeling. You need to fuel yourself for your next training session. If you don't refuel, your next training session is going to uh, hurt. 
I, and if you don't properly refuel and rest, that's the other issue, getting enough sleep. I don't know if Ben has a, a sleep quality issue, but sleep sleep makes a huge difference in, in making weight. I, I relate to so much that you have to say. Uh, one of the biggest shocks for me was going from uh, I, a very sedentary uh, training. Uh, you know, powerlifting is is not really demanding of the body in the same way that high volume, you know, I, you know, I do a comp class once a week, but I'm, I'm also just in classes, you know, four to five times a week, moving my body for two solid hours. Um, as a person, you know, I'm six foot three, like I said, and when I started this, I was like 260, you know, I was dropping weight like crazy. I, I had to find ways to add food in, but still, I, I like to adhere to like a high quality of food, even though I need a lot of calories. Like I would much rather my, my main carb sources are rice, uh, sweet potato, oatmeal, fruits. You know, I, I try to get quality food in, uh, but like keeping up with that much energy is difficult because I'm, I'm still weight training on top of that. Yeah. And that's where also, you know, for somebody that's not, doesn't need to necessarily be weight conscious mm -hmm. uh, uh, or to be aware of, but has a high volume of training that, well, I'm not going to downplay water, but maybe instead of water, have something that has calories in it and some nutrition in it. So you're adding calories to your overall day, you know, and uh, you're helping. And then this is also a time when you're looking for a high volume of food where it's not really the time to embrace tons of fruits and vegetables because that high fibers, high water content, fruit and vegetables takes up volume. That's a great way of dieting. Tell you the truth, make sure half your plate are vegetables, one quarter protein and one quarter whole grain carbs and, 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 uh, you know, and portion it so you can get to your goal if you're trying to weight reduce. But on, uh, you know, these are, and I'm glad that you mentioned carbohydrates. Another thing that I found that it's uniform throughout the combat world is a fear of carbohydrates. Mm. Uh, from, I don't know, it's got to be from years of misinformation anywhere and everywhere, but you know, their body likes to use them for a reason. Now, now, not all, I teach my athletes and anybody, um, not all carbs are created equally. Um, um, so, you know, but it doesn't mean stay away from them. It means learn which ones are going to give you fuel. So I work with a chef and we came up with something that we just call mash, which is a, a mixture of sweet potato, yuca, and, and a couple other, a malanga, and a couple other root vegetables that um, is, is, is sweet, it's not pureed, but almost. And that is something that is a, a great high starch carbohydrate for helping your glycogen reaccumulation to help energy over time, refueling carbohydrate that we have with our meals versus, you know, um, grabbing a couple of slices of Wonder Bread or something. And, um, you know, then people are still able to have, oh, I can have mash, mashed potato, but it's a healthier way, a higher fiber, higher carbohydrate, higher starch, I mean, way. And this kind of thing. So it's, it's in learning and not being afraid of the foods and learning how to use them to your benefit. Yeah. So you're, so you mentioned volume before, if you're going to be talking about like just a general person who's trying to gain weight using weight gainer, are you suggesting using like making a sludge more than a big shake? Was that, would that be helpful if uh, like some of these sludge puddings kind of thing? You know, that is not a bad idea whatsoever. And I will tell you, it's the same strategy that we used to use at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We would, uh, when there was patients that we would want to have um, higher protein diets, we would just, lay, uh, there was an order that we would write that would be uh, double milk. And they would basically get two carnation instant breakfasts mixed together that would be more of a sludge or a, not even a slurry, but more like a sludge. 
um, thinner than a Nutella consistency, um, not yet chocolate pudding, somewhere in between, um, that was more concentrated in calories. The only negative to something like that, depending on what you're making the sludge out of, and also depending on what you're having surrounding it, is that when we have concentrations that are typically above 10 or 12% carbohydrate, simple type of carbohydrates, and we're having them on a more emptier stomach or right after exercise, they can cause an osmotic pull, meaning water being pulled into your gut that can cause bloating, gas, diarrhea, and general uncomfortable uh, feelings and uh, due to the, con the glucose, fructose concentration of that. So what the sludge is also matters. But in general, most of those weight gain products are a mixture of variety of things. But I do that now with regular protein. I make a, a, a sludge. I, I'll, I'll take a little bit of yogurt uh, um, and I mix that. And I have a, you know, my youngest son, Asher. That's one way I add protein into his foods. And he likes the sludge. He thinks he's having chocolate pudding. Okay, so uh, to ask you for kind of like uh, maybe like order of, of operations or standard operating procedures that you follow in terms of like timing of nutrients, pre-workout, post-workout, intra-workout, breakfast. Like, Are there any things that you uh, feel passionate about in those categories in terms of timing calories? Um. Yeah, well, the the nutrient window matters. So I don't uh, generally uh, having something to eat, uh, uh, if able, two to three hours before first training session of the day. If not able, then generally um, uh, uh, the athletes will have a combination of a carbohydrate uh, drink on their way to training, depending on when they woke up. Uh, right after training, they're already rehydrating with electrolyte solutions. We live in Florida. Training is hot. It's not um, uncommon for people to lose 5 to 10 pounds of water weight in a training session. Um, so rehydrating with electrolyte solutions, plus or minus carbs, whether uh, they're, they're doing. Then there's food that's available to them. And my rule of thumb is get something, get something in your body within the first hour of finishing the session. And then within the next two hours max, have a solid food meal. Okay. Um, when it comes to weigh-ins, we start rehydration, refeeding the minute the person comes off the scale with um, a, a very set specific combination of dietary ingredients uh, and beverages before they get some solid foods. And the reasons have to do with because um, in the past, um, uh, in the past, the... UFC, it was banned for IV rehydration. They used to allow it. And one of the benefits that IV rehydration has for athletes that are really cutting water and then trying to weigh in is it, it doesn't rehydrate you. It just helps the rehydration uh, uh, process get faster because it gives you two liters to give you a jump start to feel normal, to give you your thirst mechanism back. When you're dehydrated, you lose your thirst mechanism, so you don't really want to drink. And it's a mountain that people overcome. So in the first hour, we're putting down 20 ounces of fluid, not that much volume of fluid with a certain kind of carbohydrate and some electrolytes. And then we're moving into some foods. And then within four hours, the athletes have to have at least a gallon of fluid back down in them. Uh, as you know, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds. Um, so um, we're able to rehydrate eight pounds of fluid. Your body won't hold it all. Some is going to spill out through normal diuresis. But this allows the cells in the body to start regular rehydration along with uh, eating 
generally every four hours or so throughout that first day. And on fight day, um, I don't change anything that fighters do. Some fighters don't like to eat at all on fight day. Some will have a big breakfast and then they don't do anything until nighttime. If they're doing that, I actually promote a combination of protein and carbs for like breakfast. Things like French toast and eggs uh, are actually really good and easy. Uh, made with whole grains, made with a variety of things. It's easy to do at the fight hotels. So that's just in a snapshot, some of what we do. Um, if you're not eating to recover, then you're eating to suffer. Uh, because, no, I'm sorry. If you're not eating to recover, then your next training session will suffer is the term that I always say to them. And it's not only about the next training session. You always depend, if you're an athlete and you have an event, it's what you also do in the 48 to 72 hours leading up to that event that make your difference on your neurological system, on your uh, ability to restore uh, energy levels and, and everything. So recently, uh, thank you for that, by the way. This is all, this is all like a ton of, I'm, gonna, I'm actually gonna watch our own podcast back to go through this again, because that's how valuable this is. Um, you talked a lot about the kind of uh, objective tests that you can do on athletes to learn more about their bodies. Um, you mentioned things like electrolyte or hydration tests, which we've recently seen, um, like Gatorade has a patch that, that you can kind of use, or there's different companies like that. What kinds of tests from that kind of area can, like, I want to go do this on myself and I, I don't live near Doug, so it'd be difficult to have him do it for, but what kind of things can I do at home to learn more about my body? Would you say, you know, one of the things that you can do is um, the specific gravity of your urine is an indicator of hydration uh, acutely. Okay. Now, um, I don't like for people to go by the color chart. There's a P color chart that's out there. And one of the reasons I don't like people to necessarily use it is because if you took a vitamin, yep. uh, and, and your urine is going to glow in the dark for the next couple of hours due to the effects of riboflavin. It's just natural. Right, it has to do with metabolism of, 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 of riboflavin. So I like people if you're going to do it at home, the patch tests are actually looking at more how much sodium you're excreting and 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 if there's any potassium being excreted. In sweat, we lose seven times as much sodium as we do potassium, but 67% of American society doesn't get um, their recommended daily intake of potassium. So most people are potassium deficient simply because they're not eating dark green leafy vegetables and having fruits with potassium in it. So I actually push coconut water. Coconut water has three times the amount of potassium in a cup, eight ounces, as one banana. So it's an easy way. And if you get all natural coconut water from the coconut or from any of the brands that don't add anything to it, it's very low in calorie, like 40 calories per eight ounces. So it's a natural way to to, we mix that with an electrolyte solution and with Vitargo and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, all of this matters. That's all I could say. The hydration state for testing, I like people to use urine-specific gravity tests, but to chart them. And you have to start looking at what is your wake-up urine-specific gravity. What are you a couple hours after you eat a meal and drink? What are you uh, after training? What are you an hour after training? And then you could start to see, do you really run on an overall body status dehydrated or underhydrated? That's an easy way of doing it. Another way of doing it, Ben, is that um, the rule of thumb is if you weigh yourself before training and then weigh yourself after training, let's just call it nude body weight, right? Um, the water, the weight loss that occurs from training. Let's say you went from 200 pounds to 195 pounds. You lost five pounds. 
the rule of thumb is that you have to uh, rehydrate with a, a pint and a quarter or 20 ounces per pound of body weight to rehydrate. Because if you would only do one pound of water for every one pound of body weight loss, we also have something that's called, um, um, there's, other, there's also other not, uh, um, nonsensical losses of fluid that happen in the body. Every time you breathe, we're actually breathing out fluid, right? You see it when you're in cold air. Um, we lose fluid in, in, of course, in urine, lose uh, fluid in feces to some degree. So we lose fluid and you have to actually overhydrate to rehydrate, 20 ounces per pound of body weight loss. That could be a large volume. Imagine Ben drops six pounds and he has to rehydrate with 120 ounces, right? Which is almost a gallon, almost, but he only has a limited time to do it. That volume of fluid becomes uncomfortable in the gut. So you have to learn how to hydrate and how to put it in. So over a four hour period, you, you get that gallon in. Most of the fighters I work with, and it's unbelievable to me, uh, honestly, because I'm not a big uh, hydrator myself. I'm just uh, on a personal level. Um, they're drinking one and a half, two gallons of fluid a day, but they're also training twice a day in Florida heat. I did a test water cut a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago. I wanted to do ADCC. I didn't make the cut to sign up for it, unfortunately, but I did the water cut anyway because I wanted to see how I would fare. I haven't done a water cut in a long time. My body has changed. And uh, I have found that hydration for me has to be incredibly intentional. If I don't try, it will not happen on its own. I, I like my diet, I can coast. I, I, I can meal prep and it can be there and I can just hit them on, on an alarm. But I, I, I have to get a gallon and a half in absolutely at my weight. And it, that is something that like, if I'm working, you know, if we're, if we're having meetings or whatever, like I have to stop and remember, I got to go grab that gallon and drink it. So there's little tips, you know, data shows I'm a data guy. People drink more of a high uh, of a flavor drink than they will of an unflavored drink. And then of one experience might be different, <laughs> but when you're talking to groups, so maybe you drink more of an iced tea than you would of yeah. something else. And I'll tell you a quick story for me. Uh, I box is my current sport have for the past 10 years or so I compete I was getting ready for a tournament and I was had the combination of cutting weight but then I was rehydrating using an iced tea and iced tea is something that's actually high in oxalates and phytates and there's an association in between oxalate intake and kidney stones yeah. and I ended up developing kidney stones that put me in the hospital instead of making it to weigh-ins and sorry and, uh, which which was um, a, a learning experience for me because I, I as a registered dietitian, I should have known that about tea and I didn't, you know, so we learn every day. I, I don't, I don't have any data on kidney stones. I have a father who really had a lot of kidney stones growing up and my understanding, and this is maybe some sort of bro science, but, uh, people, different people, I, mean, I might be blood type or something are, are susceptible to different types of kidney stones for different reasons. And yeah, so interesting. Okay. I'll say, so what can answers. I, yeah, can we get back to specific gravity? I don't really understand that science. I'm not sure if you could explain that, or are there test strips that you could buy on Amazon? Like, I, yes, there are test strips that you could buy at um, just for name brands: Walgreens, CVS, okay. any drugstore, probably Target, Walmart in their pharmacy section, probably your supermarket in the pharmacy section. And yes, on Amazon, um, and they generally are what's known as color metric meaning they react and whatever color it turns, there'll be a range one point. 1.0025, 1.0035. And depending upon where you are in the range tells you whether somebody is dehydrated, underhydrated, hypohydrated, or hydrated. And uh, they make it pretty easy. And the reason that I say that you should chart it is that you could look at your average over time. 
because any spot test, any individual test can find anything. But what's Ben's average over a day's time? Does he start off his day underhydrated? Does he end his day hydrated? Does he come off the mat and not hydrate enough when he tests himself two hours later? Did he still not recover the, the, the water weight that he lost? You know, because you can use your scale and you can use this, both as pragmatic means uh, for your own data. I need a second though, um, as an aside. Yeah, I know. I was going to say we're at an hour. Or so do you, do you want to? We can close down. It's, it's up day? to you. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I could schedule a part two with you tomorrow afternoon if you have. That works for us if you got to go. Okay, we're back. We had to uh, we had to take off, but we were having such a fun time with this conversation. We didn't want it to end. So, Doug, thanks for joining us for a second day here. I'm actually wearing the same shirt, but <laughs> <laughs> I thought <laughs> trying to look continuity. Anyway, um, so we were really deep in the, in the weeds of hydration. I like the idea that uh, talking about coconut water and everything, and and focusing on potassium. Obviously, sodium's lost a lot in salt, but a lot of people are just potassium deficient. It's tough to get in, and that kind of like made me think about some people fear coconut water because because of the sugar carbohydrate content, which made me think about you. You mentioned a lot of your athletes have been coming in um, fearing, like kind of fearing carbohydrates a bit too much. And so can you tell me what that conversation is a little bit like? Well, you know, quite often on with the combat athletes, not necessarily swimmers or tennis players, but combat athletes, you know, they most associate themselves somehow with people that are into weightlifting or bodybuilding or uh, physique. And they often confuse in my mind and talk to me like, Hey, I want to look like this kind of body. I want to have these kind of abs for this fight. And it's, and I try to explain to them and they say that they, they go about it by cutting out or reducing greatly their carb intake. Cause that's what these guys in the magazines do or internet do now. And um, we have some battles over that, you know, you need carb for the grueling workouts and, and how to understand how to, how to make carb your friend instead of being fearful of it. So, you know, we want to uh, embrace that there are some people that have misconceptions, misunderstandings about how to use food as fuel and another training agent as opposed to not understanding what it could do for you, you know? Okay, so do you have a loose... Okay, I have two questions. This one's more personal for me. Um, I like to train really early in the morning. So in general, that's going to be fasted to a degree. Would you do you suggest someone who's going to do that to carb up pretty good before bed then? Or like you mentioned, like kind of just drinking a carbohydrate solution on the way to the gym? What's what's the approach with like the end of the day before if you're going to wake up at 5 a.m. And, and train? And that's, that's a great question. And because that's real world for a lot of people, you know, mm -hmm. wake up early, try to catch a workout before going to work. Um, or, you know, depending upon, um, I'll give you your example hits home for me because uh, part of my career, I also spent overseeing sport nutrition for Florida International University, FIU in Miami. And amongst the teams that uh, were most active with sports nutrition were the swimming team. And I mentioned because most of their training sessions started at 5 or 5.30 in the morning and nobody was getting up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning so they can have some toast and jam and eggs or whatever. Um, you know, they were generally, uh, if they can have some coffee on the, on, 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 the, uh, on the ride or they were having a banana running out the door, uh, running over to the swim center kind of thing. So what do you do? What's practical? So it's practical to realize that what you eat in the, again, the, 
the 24 to 48 hours and even maybe even 72 hours prior to your training sessions have carryover effect. So if meaning that it is a great time to make sure you're having adequate carbs throughout the day, but when you know that you're going to have early morning training and you're not going to be really somebody that wakes up to eat something that you're just going to get up and go, then yeah, why not why not top off your your carb gas tank before you go to sleep? Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be, and then see, here's where myths come in. People start to think, oh, I'm going to have some simple carbohydrates. I'll have a, you know, a, I'll drink a, a carb shake, or I'll just eat a couple slices of bread or cookies or make a PBJ and think, and they don't realize what's happening is that they're actually over consuming calories or consuming differently. And that when there is, and there's misunderstandings of when your body will, uh, let's say, uh, t uh, uh, be lipogenic, turn things into fat, and then store it as adipocytes versus circulating free fatty acids. And there is some correlation in between the amount of sugar in somebody's diet and their triglycerides and circulating free fatty acids. But this has nothing to do with actually gaining body fat. So there is um, things that are said wrongly on Instagram and TikTok and elsewhere about how, oh no, don't have carbs before you go to sleep because it's going to make you fat. You're not doing anything. You're just sleeping. Well, metabolically, you're also replacing glycogen. You're also still fueling brain cycle. Remember, 20 to 25%, about 20% of your resting energy expenditure is just to maintain brain energetics, period. So one-fifth of all your calories are just for this little glob inside your head, right? And most of us, and it prefers to use carbs. Doesn't mean, prefers doesn't mean can only, just prefers, right? So in understanding all that, yeah, you, Mike, you would want to have um, some healthy, make sure that your lunch, your dinner, and a good carbohydrate-based snack was taken at night so that in the next morning, you're ready to do whatever your uh, athletic endeavor is going to be. But also, let me give a caveat here. I mean, if you're going to be doing short workouts, there's different carbohydrate needs and somebody that's going to do a, a quote-unquote quick 40-minute, 20-minute, 30-minute workout versus 75 minutes of something. Right. So that also can impress upon how many total calories and carbs that you should be taking in, you know, depending upon what your intensity and duration that next workout will be. Thank you. I would also advise, I'm sorry, most of my athletes, because they're driving somewhere to go for their training, it's not like they fall out of bed and they, you know, have this studio or whatever. So if they're not going to eat something, then we're having um, a, a carbohydrate based drink or we're having a little bit of, uh, um, I'll just name the brand. We're having some Ezekiel bread with honey, right? Some fast and slow absorbing carbs along with their coffee. And then they're off their way to, to go train and some water, of course, and other stuff. But, you know, little things to top off the fuels to get you ready to go. I, uh, I assume that there's, you know, leeway in a lot of these things. And of course, it's a good, better, best situation for most of these situations, right? And it, it, dealing with students that have limited budget versus professional athletes i understand there there is a wiggle room in these things but uh in the past mike and i have talked about um different types of of uh carbs like fructose versus others when it comes to glycogen or energy do you in general have like kind of any thoughts on timing different types of carbs for different like pre-workout post-workout or throughout the day do you think about that when you're planning foods for athletes yes um, we do think about the type of carbohydrate for the situation, and sometimes it doesn't matter, and sometimes it does. 
So when the athletes I'm working with are in, uh, let's say, a more rigorous structured training camp two, three times per day, six days per week kind of thing, um, we are much more structured with the type of carbohydrate that we're having, uh, really with a greater emphasis on your more starchy or long-lasting kind of carbs. And then, But in the immediate post-repletion period, you know, we're using some of the simpler carbs to help do a few things. And let me explain. So yes, you can rehydrate just with water and you can rehydrate with flavored water and you can rehydrate sugar-free or with sugar. Some of the benefits of having carbohydrate in your rehydration solution is that sodium follows glucose for transportation. So it's a sodium glucose transporter that's taking sodium from the blood and taking it from outside the cell to inside the cell. At the same time, we have a concentration gradient of about basically two sodium molecules for every potassium. So that tells us that we also want a ratio and a gradient of, uh, of more than just sodium in the fluids that we're getting in. Even though that when we sweat, we sweat out seven times the amount of sodium as we do potassium. But as I mentioned earlier or yesterday, about 67% of this country does not equal eat the recommended daily intake uh, uh, for potassium, which is, I, I believe it's 4,700 milligrams. And so uh, with that being said, there's a good reason and rationale for to, to mix some simple carbs with some electrolytes in that post-exercise period. And even sometimes in a pre-exercise period, uh, depending upon what they're going to be doing. Now, remember, just as in medicine, the dose could be good, the dose could be the treatment, and the dose could be the poison. So if we're doing a little bit of simple carbs before a workout, we're not doing a high concentration because a high concentration, something greater than 10%, um, actually causes gastric upset. So why would I want Mike having gastric upset if he's doing laps in a pool, if he's running or whatever your training session might be, if he's, you know, an e-gamer and he's got to spend an hour playing e-games, you know, so, um, you know, these are, are things that we have to consider. But in general, we're promoting just much more of the, the starchy carbohydrates that are much more glycogen friendly. Uh, and we strategically will use some of the simple ones. Yeah, as I've gotten more into the two a day training, just be, just because of the, like I, I said to you guys earlier in the episode yesterday, but for most people to be earlier, uh, I train I weight train four times a week and I do jujitsu four to five times a week. So sometimes I'm doing this, the two things in the same day. And whereas I used to focus on, you know, getting in my calories throughout the day, it wasn't super imperative. I, I would try to have some food in me before I went to the gym. Now that I'm training two to three times a day to be able to get the food in in a way that doesn't bother my stomach but also fuels me enough has had to become a lot more tactical. Uh, I'm the kind of person that I like to train with. I like to train satiated. I like to, I like to have food inside of myself when I'm training. Uh, I just feel more powerful when I, I, I deal with carbs very well. It's the other thing too, but I don't like an empty stomach when I'm training. Um, but at the same time, when you're training twice a day, you have to spread those calories out so that you have enough gas for the second training session. Um, so I've tried to get more tactical with, uh, you know, having, I, I'm big on oats in the morning. It just fills me up very well. And then going into the second session, I might be having more fruits and honey and orange at that point to try to get myself some quicker carbs in. Um, and then and until after that session, that's when I start to put starchy carbs back in. Cause well, with, with somebody session. like you, uh, what we do is if they're having a late afternoon session and we've already had a, after the first session, we've already had a rehydration and a recovery solution. We've already had one or two meals or one meal and a snack. 
they're having again like a pre-training snack like you are but um limiting more on the fruits they might have a banana they may have a couple of uh grapes or some watermelon just because those are very high in water um uh, not fibrous um but we're actually doing a little bit more of uh using uh sometimes again oats with honey a little bowl of oatmeal with honey to get because honey believe it or not is a mixture of fructose and glucose naturally occurring and uh studies in athletes show and studies with people with normal blood sugar sh show it does not cause any of the normal spikes and 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 actually studies have shown honey supplementation can help prolong exercise duration the problem is like you know you're not going to be squeezing honey bear all day Mm -hmm. And nobody from a manufacturing standpoint yet has figured out, is there a way to take honey and make it a powdered honey with, that could be reconstituted? Because if you could take a powdered honey, then you can mix it with uh, uh, proteins. Uh, 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 and it would be a better carbohydrate, a, a very good carbohydrate source for recovery, natural that's mixed with protein. So we actually use some honey with some Ezekiel bread uh, or some honey with um, a few other kinds of things. Um, as that mid-afternoon snack, just trying to stay under 300 calories, um, trying to get in somewhere like 50 to 70 grams of carbs. And uh, the fruit portion's there because it contains other minerals and electrolytes. But, the, the, you know, still it's just 50 grams or so of carbs from that kind of field. The other thing that I would say is throughout the day, uh, most of my athletes have, besides using a high starchy mixture of mash, like mashed up malanga, mashed up yuca, mashed up sweet potato um, or Japanese sweet potato because those are higher starch, greater for uh, prolonged energy. We also use jasmine rice, which is a, a fast absorbing, fast cooking, easy rice that everybody basically knows how to make, kind of easy um, and typically doesn't slow you down if that's what you're having, say, Ben, your lunchtime and will allow for easy pass out of the stomach for um, feeling good with digestion. And then when you're rolling into, if your second session of the day is strength training or it's another BJJ session, you're not feeling weighted down or bloated uh, as if you would have had um, wrongly uh, two bowls of broccoli and a small baked potato and thinking that you were doing the healthy thing uh, for yeah. athletic performance. Now remember, and this, is, this might be uh, uh, different to some, Sport nutrition is not about health. Sport nutrition is about performance. It's about bigger, faster, stronger, leaner. It's not about necessarily long-term health. Overall, the big picture is you should be able to learn and teach about long-term health. But when you look at the average lifespan of the NFL athlete dies when they're about 58 years old, about 18 to 20 years earlier than the rest of us, Right? Why? It's because a higher incidence of, of, of diabetes and hypertension and heart disease, secondary to a lot of times when you're playing a sport like that and you are bigger, when you're no longer playing, you haven't been taught how to, well, now I don't need to eat 10,000 calories a day or whatever it might be. I don't need to carry 300 pounds. I'm not a lineman anymore. You know? um, and they stop the explosive training. They stop the other stuff. And then, but then diabetes catches them or hypertension catches them. So I, I really mean that performance nutrition is about performance. It's not always about health. Um, and, and I think they're, uh, uh, but a good nutritionist wants to teach you 
and help with, you know, long, good lifestyle habits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doug, I got to, um, to thank you for coming on the podcast. I am going to be sending you some oaky honey. I had no idea how good the honey could taste until I moved out here to Oklahoma. I got. I, I'm gonna have a gift for you because it thank it is like changed my completely. Uh, I've never been huge on honey. I never liked the stuff that was out there in stores, but I, I use honey like very very liberally now because it just tastes so good out here. Uh, a lot of people. I, I'm gonna know. Like I, I guess it's important to, to discuss. Like a lot of people listening, this should be mostly geared towards performance. Of course, a lot of people get concerned about um, like fructose overloading the liver or like problems with fatty liver in terms of um, gaining weight, obesity, diabetes and everything. And and so I've kind of seen both sides of the fructose argument there, but um, it, it's gotten to the point where I don't care because I like honey so much. And I think like training hard enough. Um, but th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference when we're talking, there's a lot of straw man arguments with this uh, correlation of fructose, fatty liver disease and obesity where you have to look at where else are the calories coming from. So for example, you're a healthy guy that that is engaged in lifestyle habits of pretty much, I'm assuming healthy kind of eating along with physical activity on a daily or almost daily basis, as opposed to somebody that is more sedentary and having lots of foods that may have high fructose corn syrup, right? That's where they're getting fructose. They're not getting it from eating a ton of apples. I've never really seen an apple shaped guy eating tons of apples. Right, you know, uh, nor pear-shaped uh, 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 females eating tons of pears. It's usually from, un- unfortunately, from um, a different form of malnutrition. And and I I think that we get um, sometimes, you know, bad news. Not bad news. We get things twisted in understanding. If you're an athlete and you're really watching, doesn't matter if you had 16 grapes or 18 grapes. Suddenly, are you going to gain, uh, you know, five grams of fat on your belly? No, there's a difference when you're looking at the totality of the diet. Again, it's th- those people that are having fructose from a lot of the concentrated sources. Yeah, you might think you're giving your kids something good by giving them the individual pre-packed, you know, fruit bowls, but it's packed in high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> so is it good? Uh, or, you know, so those things add up, though, over a lifetime. Are they really And so there are real uh, associations with fatty liver disease. Um, and and obesity and and other things, but generally in healthy, active people that generally don't eat processed foods and don't drink, you know the 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 tangs or whatever other worlds. I don't know the names of these products. They're not getting that uh, in what they have. Love it. Makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Ben was going to say something, right? <laughs> yeah. Can Can I ask? Uh, so carbohydrates are now. It's a big discussion. Carbohydrates role in hydration. Um, we've talked a lot about carb, uh, carbohydrates is just in terms of co- consumption and fuel, but their association with hydration, I don't think we've touched on too much. Do you have any sort of ratio that you look at there when you're refueling a post-workout or however you're using it for hydration? Yeah, uh, yes. And this is a great question. And it actually catches back to something that we were discussing a little bit yesterday. So if you don't mind, I'd like to touch on two different topics. Ben, you were asking, I believe it was yesterday, like if hypothetically you were getting ready for a meet and you had a drop 10 or 15 pounds, what would we think of, what would we do? And part that I failed to mention yesterday that we also do is when we're doing all of these physiologic and metabolic tests, we're also looking to determine, because we pretty much know the liver can store X amount of grams of glycogen, the muscles can store X amount of grams of glycogen. For every one gram of glycogen that's stored, there's about 2.7, let's round it to three grams of water. Uh, so three grams of HDO are stored with uh, H2O are stored with every gram of glycogen. So we know that when people start cutting their carbohydrates and their glycogen stores going down, 
their body hydration is going down, right? So, and we know that when we refuel with carbohydrates to where to the point where they could start, uh, their gas tank starts filling again, your muscle and liver glycogen stores start refueling and so does the water stores, right? So one of the reasons why glucose is used uh, for hydration is not only because it helps drive sodium and other electrolytes for uptake in, from extracellular to intracellular, but also because of this other effect that we're mentioning, because it helps shuttle in glycogen, hopefully to be stored, and with each gram of glycogen, three grams of water. When our muscles are somewhere in between 62 to 73% water, that's about the normal hydration state of a muscle, right? That about that 5% or so range, uh, then you're able to do optimal uh, everything, right? And then when we start dropping below 66, 65% of, of uh, muscle water content, you're more apt to, to uh, tears, more apt to injuries, more apt to strains, more apt to not being able to perform. So we do like to look at um, you know, these things from a testing standpoint. From a hydration standpoint, again, it's really just that it helps your muscles recover because it's also driving fluid to be stored inside your muscles. And when they're in st stored again inside your muscles, um, a, a, a hydrated cell is anabolic, right? One of the things that you need for muscle protein synthesis is a hydrated cell. You cannot get muscle protein synthesis to any significant degree when an individual is dehydrated. You're going to get more muscle protein breakdown than you will get synthesis. And remember, the ability to have more synthesis then breakdown is must, allows you to accrue new muscle. Hey, you gained 20 pounds of muscle this year, right? Versus the ability where breakdown is greater than synthesis is where you start becoming cachectic. Your body's eating away at its own muscle. Typically what happens in bodybuilders during peak week or during the weeks leading up to it, and even what happens with combat athletes that are cutting weight too fast. So there are strategies that we utilize to help minimize the amount of muscle loss that occurs during caloric restriction while you're trying to lose weight. Um, and these things are just to help minimize the effect of what's known from physiology so that that athlete can stay hydrated, stay with some muscle protein synthesis going on, uh, and be able to make it all the way up to the day of their event. Awesome. In so, terms of uh, avoiding um, muscle breakdown during a peak week or anything, are you generally adding like essential amino acids or anything into these solutions as well, or are you just relying mostly on food with a lot of the athletes? Um, it's a combination um, because there are different levels of fluid intake uh, with uh, the, the, on an individual basis. For some of them, we use a combination of just EAAs that are mixed into their um, electrolyte drinks or recovery drinks, and they sip on that throughout the day. Um, or if they're still taking in one or two gallons of fluid per day, there's a certain amount of scoops, if you will, of EAAs with electrolytes that are being added per gallon. And they're just sipping on that uh, per day, keeping it cold because we've all discovered uh, um, room temperature amino acids um, are really um, uh, um, a great way to not want to have any more. <laughs> At least for me, it needs to be ice cold. Um, yeah, this, the, this uh, smell, yeah. But let me tell you, um, um, from my time in early on in my um, undergraduate registered dietitian training, the, the advancement in food science and food technology from what amino acids tasted like on an individual amino acid basis, 
I remember in, I think it was 1990 or 91, I'm in a food science class with Dr. Sate at Florida State University. And part of what we were doing for, he was a protein expert. And part of what we were doing were, was uh, taste testing each individual amino acid and seeing what they're like and what you could make out of them. Like certain amino acids, the aroma of popcorn come from. So they're used in microwave popcorn to give it, you know, so like you learn other uses and other characteristics. But one thing that we learned is most of them taste like yuck. And since then, uh, with any of the brands now that have BCAs or EAAs, they're much, so much more palatable. And there is a benefit. There's two things that we utilize, EAAs slash BCAAs. It depends upon what's available to the athlete. Four. One is flavored drinks help them stay hydrated. Two, there's electrolytes that we have mixed in. Three, if you're getting at least 10 grams or more, uh, some data shows a, a decrease in the amount of muscle protein breakdown, so less catabolism. And the fourth thing that I like for these athletes is that, and there's also data to support this, there's less perceptual DOMS. So when delayed onset muscle soreness. So if you're sore during peak week, and if you're sore during your last two weeks, you're getting ready for um, you know, a BJJ contest or a powerlifting contest and you had to make weight, it sometimes can psychologically impair your effort because you think, you know, damn, I heard already. What's this going to be like? You know? And so it, if you're not having that perception of soreness, remember mindset matters, especially for a uh, competitive sport, competitive eating, competitive jujitsu, mindset matters. Okay. So, so you mentioned, uh, the, the the ratio of glycogen to water in the muscle. Um, yeah. And I, I'm imagining that a bunch of people are sitting at home thinking like, is there a, a protocol or an equation where, hey, I'm, I, I come off the mats or I come out of the gym or whatever it is, whether it's Mike or me or whatever sport. Could you give us like an idea of what, what does the solution look like between carbs? If you're going to prepare a drink, I know you're, you're big on Vitargo, which you use a certain amount of Vitargo with a certain amount of sodium and, and potassium. Is there any kind of like starting place that you look at with that? Um, that's a great question. I was struggling with that this morning, actually, because I have a, a fighter that I'm working with that has a history of, uh, uh, of rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis occurring. Uh, um, and so we're being very careful in the amount of strain that he's going through, uh, uh, because he has a fight camp to make it and he doesn't want, you know, one canceled because of that. So there's differences, different needs, but based upon different. But to answer you, Ben, there's not a cookie cutter formula when you're dealing one on one because of your height, your weight, your energy efforts. Um, remember, if I'm working one on one or if Dr. Corey Peacock, who's uh, uh, the sports physiologist with uh, Kill Cliff Fight Club, the team that I work with, um, um, the strength and conditioning coach, if we're doing this testing, we're able to see what, what kind of calories your body's burning at rest and what kind of calories you burn at maximal effort, what you burn at X percent and, 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 and Y percent beats per minute. And then we're able to match because we're able to see, oh, you're, you're going to be, for this 45 minutes of training, you're going to be burning 100 grams of carb, this amount of this, this amount of this. So this is what we want to replenish. We take a look at your total caloric needs and also try to divide it up throughout the day so that no one meal is a mountain and you're able to get in snacks and meals at a relatively 300 to 700 calories each time so that you're not feeling overloaded. Um, when we're coming with a solution like that, it could be anywhere from 
20 to 50 or 70 grams of carbohydrate, um, uh, uh, 250 to 500 milligrams of sodium, 750 to 1,000 milligrams of potassium, uh, some calcium and some other uh, um, uh, electrolytes and minerals. Um, okay. We will often mix, if it's a brand name, Vitargo and coconut water together because coconut water, again, is three times the amount of potassium per eight ounces as compared to one banana. Um, and if it's natural coconut, it's about 40 calories uh, per cup. So you're not adding uh, uh, sugars, you're not adding uh, uh, much calories, and you're getting uh, some other you know, benefits. So we mix all that uh, together. Uh, uh, I hope that somewhat answers your yeah. question. I guess the reason, just to kind of give you reference, the reason I'm asking that is yesterday you gave us info on uh, per pound of water lost, you wanted a certain, I think it was a pint and a half of water, 20 ounces. Yeah, 20 ounces per pound is a rule of thumb. Yeah, so I'm, I'm starting to just kind of like, water. after this, because I, I, I want to try to apply a lot of this. I'm going to try to get some of the, the, the objective info that you were looking at and also just try to track this. And I'm thinking post-workout, right? It looks like 20 ounces of water per pound. And you could use that as a, as a time to use the coconut water, use the, the carbohydrate, use the sodium potassium and, and augment that rehydration yep. time. Yep. And especially if you find, you know, if you weigh yourself before and after practice, right? And and you find, hey, I just dropped one pound. No big deal. But oh, today, man, I sweat like an MF and I'm down six pounds. Like today, I had sparring this morning. Before sparring, I was, I think, you know, it wasn't even long. It was only about an hour. And I think I was down four pounds. Four and Do a half pounds. Do you track pounds. every single session with that? No, no. Uh, just only if I'm curious. And only if nobody is standing on the scale at the time. <laughs> so um, about twice a week, I check, honestly. Is that because it becomes intuitive for you, though, after all the time that you've been doing this? Yes, uh, both because uh, from my own competitive career or life, part of my athletics is, uh, has been wrestling. And so wrestling is very weight class oriented. And you, um, I learned very early on how to manage what I ate and how it affected my body weight. Yeah. I mean, as a teenager, I was an expert in manipulating body weight. Um, good or bad, didn't, but still had ends to a mean. Um, but yeah, it's partially it, it, it's experience. Really, you it, the thing is to try these things over and over, and to keep a chart, and then you could see which way am I going. Yeah, you know, am I hydrating enough? I just lost three pounds, but it's damn, it's ten o'clock, and I really don't feel like drinking another forty ounces of fluid. Am I going to wake up dehydrated? Uh, what's my pee going to be like? All right, can I catch up tomorrow? And you know, the funny thing is. Um, there was a study that was done, and in this study, it was there was two groups of uh, there were there were a group of athletes that were exercised until they were dehydrated under two different sessions, and in one session they were rehydrated with a specific amount of fluid per pound of body weight loss, and then their body weight was measured again twenty four hours later, and then in the other group they were given zero rehydration. And their body weight and water weight, again, was measured 24 hours later. The group that got zero rehydration, their body water weight turned back to normal within the 24-hour period. So you don't, our body has ways through foods that we eat and other, it wasn't like they starved for the 24 hours. They just, um, the, the, that, that make up for it. Yeah. The, the idea in getting the fluids close to the time that you just finished your event or training is that that's when your body's needing it the most. And if you could start early recovery, then that early recovery already sets you in a positive stage for your next meal and next training session. 
And the idea is that you have to look at nutrition as another training tool. And again, not like as a, a vice or something, you know, that's food channel worthy. Yeah. Right. I, you so, can make foods taste good, but again, food be, can become your weapon and supplements could become part of the iron that sharpens your game. I love that. Um, I, I'm experiencing all of that. I, I, tr I started training this year at a new jujitsu gym and they're incredible. I mean, th we have a great comp team. They're, they're all very competitive, but there's not a lot of focus on nutrition. And so me coming in, obviously there's a lot of questions uh, and it's awesome because I've helped a lot of people pick some things out. Uh, and it's so interesting that you shared that study. I didn't know about that study, but last week I got together a couple of the co competitive competitors and I asked them before and after the comp class, could you please weigh yourselves and let me know what the weight is? Um, and, and it's cool because two in general, uh, two specific I spoke to, one is, has been a wrestler for years. So he drinks a, a gallon and a half every single day. He just, he, that's, that's you know, like, like you said, he is familiar okay. with manipulating his weight. The other one is a wrestler, but he's always been like a 130. He never had any issues making the weight. He's always been there. He works at uh, uh, Jersey Mike's, you know, like most of his diet is subs and, and is a great competitor. He's super, he, like he moves incredibly. And because of that, he can eat subs all day long, I assume. And he doesn't have to focus as much on the weight as like the 180 has to, right? And so the, the 135 asks me, he goes, let me ask you. I lose weight. I lose pounds every single session, but I don't go home and pound a gallon of water. How is it that my body comes back up if I'm not putting the water into it? And we all kind of stood there for a second. And I was like, that's a great question. I assumed it had to have been, you know, water from food. If you eat fruits and I'm, I assume there's lettuce and tomato in those subs and that's where he's and we also have metabolic waste that we forget about. And part of that metabolic waste gets excreted, but part could be reabsorbed in your distal colon. So our, our body has the ability to absorb fluids throughout the GI tract and then reabsorb fluids in your distal colon. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, the body is fabulous. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So Ben, not that I'm doing what you're doing, just going by taste alone, I use, um, I mix coconut water powder with salt and I'm doing 10 grams of coconut water powder. I've found that 10 grams taste, and that's probably not enough nutrition for you, but that tastes best with um, half a gram of salt. And what's funny is that turns into 300 milligrams of potassium to 250 to 200 or so milligrams of sodium, which is like a decent ratio too. So a that's great kind ratio. Of, that's kind of like where I've landed just based on taste of like making coconut water taste better with a little bit of salt. So See, you can take that formula and amplify it. Yeah, most definitely. And you're spot on. One of the things to realize when it comes to dietary supplements and potassium different than nutrition facts and potassium. There's a limit on the amount of potassium that, uh, uh, if I recall correctly, that's allowed to be added to products yes. due to potential of, uh, uh, impact, negative impacts on cardiovascular function. Mm -hmm. Especially capsules per serving. Yeah, it's yeah. like 99 milligrams on the FDA. Right. So therefore, it makes it a little bit difficult when you're having something that's, a, let's say, 500 milligrams of sodium to have the amount of potassium that would really be beneficial. Uh, in that, and that's why mixing with the coconut water solution and everything else just to me makes sense and makes it easier and also helps solve two, two issues, you know, uh, hydration and uh, the potassium. Another thing that I think that also people forget when you're talking about muscles and hydration, um, you know, one of the, the elements that's most required by the body is calcium. And, and your, your, your actin and myosin, you won't cross bridge. Your muscles will not contract without adequate calcium and ionic calcium activity and a whole bunch of other stuff. 
But the importance of adequate calcium in the diet and, and a normal, healthy, functioning parathyroid can't be underestimated, which means adequate vitamin D in the diet. And all of that, again, ends up uh, affecting the quality of your muscle. So all of these dietary and lifestyle effects um, uh, have an impact uh, throughout the age range, you know, whether you're active now in your 30s, 40s, 20s, or later on in life, 60s and 70s, and you're just looking to stay healthy longer, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if Ben has any other questions. I want, we were talking about kind of general um, hydration solutions. I was wondering if you have like, if you don't know someone at all and 25 year old active fighting athlete, probably, I don't know what the calories would be, maybe 5,000, 6,000 a day. I don't know. Do you have a macro breakdown is where I'm going. Like, do you, do you have like a starting point where if you don't know anything, they are terrible with nutrition, but a great fighter, like what macro breakdown would you start them with? That's a great question. And um, I go by two things, right? Of course, objective data, but I also go and interview. So I interview you, Mike. I learned, I like to learn about your individual food likes and dislikes and habits. Everybody has habits. What time do you wake up? Do you normally eat in the morning? What you like to eat? Are you a repetitive person? And I'll get to your answer because all of these influence the answer because you can't, ha you can't, you can write whatever you want to somebody, but if they don't like it, they won't do it. So what good is it? I can't prescribe you broccoli three times a day if you hate that broccoli and it's like the devil to you. You won't do it. So I like to live where you are, meet you where you are, and then help manipulate from there. So when it comes to carbohydrates, when it comes to people that are doing sports like Ben, and even people that are doing a lot of weightlifting, that is a glycogen-depleting, carbohydrate-dependent physical activity. There's no reason to be afraid of carbohydrates. In general, when you're exercising, you're going to go through, you know, and it could be 50 to 100 grams of carbohydrates per hour of exercise. You're easily going to be burning. So uh, oxidizing at this, especially at the higher intensities of BJJ and competitive weightlifting and things like this. So when it comes to looking at macros, uh, generally I'm, I'm more of a, 50 to 60%, 50 to 65% on the carbs for athletes like this. Um, a good 20 to 25% on protein and the remaining from fat. Um, I like athletes not to be afraid of fat, but sometimes I, I feel like there's a wrong emphasis on, on the damn avocado. And, and, <laughs> and, and not that avocados are bad for you, but we have to understand uh, – there is a problem when you get too little dietary fat, and that's generally 10% of your diet or less uh, over time, especially as an athlete, more joint injuries uh, and soreness than a little bit higher. And some studies actually show that if I gave you a fatty meal, a high fat breakfast on the day of competition, you get a more positive hormonal effect during your competition. So if you had a high egg meal in the morning, right? Eggs contain fat, a couple of eggs, and maybe a little bit of oatmeal or toast. The fat in that content would actually have a positive impact on your hormones during your event. So in general, though, it's like the kind of, there's a difference in between eating for training during the week or eating for a competition. And we alter that. So when it's normal, your weight maintaining, then we're, you know, 55, 65% carb, 20, 25% protein, 15, 20% fat. And making it all equal to a hundred somewhere. I love it. Thank you. Uh, we yeah. do, we do reduce carbohydrates slightly as we're reducing body weight, but we're also reducing 
total calories, not just carbs. We're also cutting back a little bit on other things or re-emphasizing, adjusting. I'm lowering carbs, but I'm increasing protein, but I'm lowering calories. Or mm -hmm. I'm increasing calories, but I'm increasing the protein portion because um, it's protein is a, thermono, a thermogenic uh, a macronutrient. It costs your body more energy to break down protein to, for the, the carbon skeletons for use than it does carbs or fat. So it, it's actually more energy costly. So you can use it in your advantage when you're looking to diet because you're making your body work harder to, to burn energy. That becomes an advantage when you know how to manipulate your food and, and, and fluid and body intake. I assume when someone's dieting down too, like there's a minimum protein. You definitely don't want them to go under, like in terms of grams per pound of body weight or whatever. Yeah, in general, um, protein's the last thing to go. Right. Um, uh, when we're working, because your body, we have a process called gluconeogenesis. Mm -hmm. Our body has the ability to make carbohydrates from non-carbohydrate sources. The amino acid. Sorry, the amino acid alanine is the most gluconeogenic amino acid. If I'm giving you enough amino acids or enough protein in your diet, your body will be making enough carbs to do what it needs to do. So uh, we can reduce carb intake and have higher protein intake and your body will still be making 40 to 50% of carbs that your liver is producing during extended activity is actually coming from amino acid skeletons, uh, protein that's broken down. Uh, and, and so, uh, no, we, we, we don't, uh, uh, we don't cheap out on protein, uh, because as, uh, you have to remember also when Ben is getting ready for a competition, there's, there's other things that are affecting him or somebody's getting ready for a fight. And these other things that are stressors mm -hmm. also leave you more susceptible to have a weaker immune system while you're cutting weight, while you're not getting enough sleep, while you're stressed about the event coming up and then suddenly you find with the upper respiratory tract infection and you can't do shit come uh, 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 fight day or train day. Excuse my mouth for a second. Um, and, and so that being said, your protein is the backbone of your immune system, protein and fats, <laughs> really. So it's understanding all the functions of proteins and all of your neurotransmitters are made out of amino acids. So I don't, I don't cheap out of those. If anything, I promote those more because there's a greater correlation in between about one and a half grams of protein um, uh, uh, intake uh, um, and uh, positive mood states and positive sleep quality uh, uh, on a gram per kilogram basis. So, so okay. Yeah. So I guess my my, my follow up question to all of the like the the, the dietary supplement stuff is to in, include a little bit of your ISSN background because one thing I wanted to note we kind of got into the position stands, but I one of the things I love so much about what you do, Doug, and what you've done with ISSN is put position stands on like there's tons of supplements out there every year i go to issn and there's you know there's new ones paraxanthine dilucine all these new crazy ingredients but you guys do position stands on the stuff that you really can get behind so you have a you now have an uh, an athlete that you know eats enough protein fats and carbs times them generally right does all these things they get their electrolytes in what are like the few supplements that you would put in there because i know you guys have position stands on creatine and beta alanine but a few like really solid ones. What what do you give everyone? Uh, well, if you're saying, we'll say everybody, but it's not always everybody for uh, whatever reasons. Yeah. But the ba the base that we that we utilize um, include creatine, uh, beta alanine, multivitamin, fish oil, um, and protein. 
if I didn't say that already. Mm -hmm. See, uh, the funny thing about protein is that protein products can either have a nutrition facts label and be considered a food, like uh, uh, Fair Life or Core Protein that you see in 7-Elevens and everywhere, the high protein made by Coca-Cola um, uh, or owned by, partially owned by Coca-Cola, um, as well as have a supplement facts label. So I don't always consider protein a, a supplement. To me, it's just another macronutrient. But protein mm -hmm. is a basis multivitamin, fish oil, creatine, beta alanine. Um, depending upon the athlete's uh, past injury profile, we also sometimes will use a combination of, of uh, glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, and hyaluronic acid for joint health. Um, I published a number of studies on, on those ingredients over the years to understand the difference in between what has data and what hasn't or does not. Um, so those are some of the just basic standards. Uh, I get asked all the times about uh, some things that I consider weird stuff uh, by athletes. I, I heard that this is supposed to increase my testosterone. Will it? No. This activated charcoal that you taught me, uh, brought me is only going to make you poop tomorrow. Won't do anything for your testosterone. You know, like, so we get all these kinds of questions. Um, and also because, honestly, the fighters come from all over the world. You know, there's people from Dagestan, people from Russia, people from Israel, people from uh, uh, Africa, people from all over the U.S., Brazil, uh, uh, um, and, and, and other countries that, you know, they also sometimes are bringing stuff from where they're from and, and then asking, hey, I was told that this is good for me. What do you think? I think that you should have asked before you took it. <laughs> I mean, I, I love that attitude from the ISSN because you guys do have presentations every year of new ingredients that might be that might be a new pilot study or something interesting um that that you know chad's doing or something but uh the stuff that issn is willing to put out a position stand on has usually been around and stood the test of time it's stuff that we really do know how it works and that it works and that it's safe and i you know kind of like you said any what did you say yesterday any dimwit could put together a formula with your position stands and it's absolutely <laughs> yeah, pretty like, much but it, it, one thing that i wanted to add i'm sorry mike is that uh, within the position stands that get updated typically every five to seven years or so, um, there is the ISSN research and recommendation uh, position stand. And within that position stand, that covers what I would say more or less is everything about sport nutrition. It covers all of the research and recommendations regarding the macronutrients for a variety of different athletic types. Also covers um, probably a hundred different supplements that are put into different categories. Too early to tell, has some promise, more evidence than your grandma's whatever, you know. Um, and, and that also helps people over time see, well, wow, look how much beta alanine has grown. Or look at hobamine now is too early to tell, but this antioxidant seems to have some cellular regeneration function that might be good for oxidative stress and, or re recovery. Let's say. So what will science say over the time? And so in these ISSN position stands, research and recommendations, you can get a, a pretty good inkling about where things are in terms of the evidence based uh, uh, data regarding about 100 different supplements. Doug, big thing we haven't talked about here is caffeine dose. You do have a position stand for caffeine. We've seen studies, a lot of research between five and six to nine milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight, which are pretty high doses. 
Um, yes. Maybe not for some of our listeners, but for the average person, very high doses. Where where does this go with uh, in terms of the fighters? They're a different breed. Um, <laughs> you know, so no, what I, what I would say is actually when it comes to caffeine, um, in the ISSN position stands, the sweet spot, it really appears to be three to six milligrams per kilogram. Right. And that's for You're, strength gains, I think, a lot too. So maybe uh, yeah, even for cognitive gain. effects, mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be any benefit to going above nine, mm -hmm. right? So you can go three to nine, but that's a hell of a lot. Right. If you're a hundred kilogram person, what is that? 900 uh, milligrams. Yeah. Right. If you go nine milligram per kilogram, the FDA doesn't recommend more than 400 milligrams in a day. Everybody's different for tolerance level and whether you develop uh, sleep disturbances or anxiety or anything like that. But in general, when it, the athletes, when they ask me about caffeinated products and they seem to be either attracted to energy drinks or get a lot of energy drink sponsors, uh, like you went to go visit Jocko. And I know that he has an MMA background and, and sponsors some fighters, as do a variety of brands. Um, matter of fact, the team I work with is sponsored uh, uh, by Killcliffe, which uh, is an energy drink brand too, um, along with some coffee companies, which are kind of funny. Um, but with that, we general, I generally tell people 200 to 300 milligrams, try to limit and try to limit to no more than 400 or 600 in a day. I tell my athletes don't have two energy drinks in a day. Uh, no need to. Um, I, I actually not. try to get them away from it. Instead, just have a cup of coffee or an espresso uh, if they really need something. Um, not that there's inherent danger in these energy drinks, but I don't want uh, people develop. Uh, uh, people tend to develop habits. So it becomes like, so I have a habit. I have to retie my shoes before I get on a wrestling mat. I have to retie my shoes before I get up to baseball. I also like to have an energy drink before I go to the gym. Comes back from the days where back in the day when I was growing up, you'd buy a ripped fuel energy, um, a Fedra energy drink, uh, and you would go to the gym and lift, or you would buy the, the, the ABB version of their, their Fedra energy drink. And mm -hmm. these days people do that with whatever drinks. And I think the problem becomes that the cumulative effect and the timing. So if you could try to just limit things 200 to 300, after all, um, um, I'm a caffeinated person, as you could probably tell, but a grande Starbucks, right? Many people go to Starbucks, but so the medium, which is a 20 ounce size in Starbucks, but a medium that generally has about 350 milligrams of caffeine mm -hmm. per 20 ounces. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I find it interesting, uh, yeah. this, uh, this discussion I've had with a lot of athletes that, and you even said it, you would pick a cup of coffee over an energy drink, but you would probably be getting similar amounts of caffeine from a cup of coffee. Um, for me, it's the, the polyphenol content, all the other things in the coffee that, that are uh, beneficial. Actually, I think this year at your conference, there, there was a whole talk about polyphenol content of, of yep. coffee. Um, but yep. you really are getting the same amount of caffeine. Do you find that that natural source you consider to be more healthy or you know, what's your rationale behind that? No, it's not that it's uh, from a more healthy perspective. I just don't like the, the, repetitive, the repetitiveness of habit on something like that when maybe you don't actually really need it at the time. So trying to teach a person also to question yourself. Do I need or want, right? Something like you do with kids. Do you need this right now or you want it, right? You know, so the same thing here when it comes to that. I'm not against, uh, you know, again, I, I utilize them. You go to my boxing gym half the time, I'm drinking one on my way to my boxing gym too, either a cup of coffee or that. Depends upon the time of day. 
but they have a function. And one of the things that I love about coffee is all of the other polyphenols and other compounds in there have additive effects that people, um, their cells appreciate, but maybe they don't. Their brain appreciates, but maybe they don't. And that, uh, um, um, and these things are another reason to include that as part of uh, your daily intake. I love it. Mm-hmm. Doug, I don't know if you saw this. There, I, we, I was just brought to my attention yesterday. There was a study published in 2022. We'll have to link in the show notes. Um, and they used elite boxers and they combined caffeine and taurine, compared it against placebo as well as caffeine alone and I believe taurine alone. And they found that the, the magic number there, six milligrams per kilogram of body weight of caffeine with a three gram taurine dose. Um significantly improved agility balance and cognitive performance so Doesn't for the high dose ca- yeah for the high dose caffeine people um I- i'm starting to like really think that we're actually underdosing taurine for some individuals and it could be possibly something that kind of like levels out some of the jitters of the caffeine um enabling you to to go to those higher doses that have some pretty cool research on it so I- i'll send you this study if you hadn't seen it because what's cool is they did it in elite athletes so right. Right. It was uh, not just like regular dudes off the street. What I find is no, like- uh, I, I was fortunate enough to publish uh, uh, some some other studies in, in uh, uh, also where we did a study um, actually during the filming of Ultimate Fighter season 21. And afterwards, because of all of the equipment that we were using, we were able to monitor sleep. We were able to mo- monitor uh, mental status, uh, uh, autonomic nervous system readiness, uh, uh, physical readiness. And we were published data regarding, um, you know, sleep and injuries. And there's also data regarding sleep and microbiome, uh, of course, that we know. And when you're, you're mentioning here things that are, uh, you know, you get taurine as an amino acid. One of the effects that it has on your cell is it's an osmoregulator. It helps regulate the fluid status of a cell. So anytime that you can hyperhydrate a cell, you help make it more anabolic. When it's dehydrated, it's catabolic. So taurine helps drive anabolic processes. It's an underappreciated uh, um, amino acid for that, except for maybe uh, the Red Bull people, since they named it uh, uh, after that, <laughs> uh, uh, mm-hmm. after the mm-hmm. amino acid taurine. Cool. I get very concerned with my heart rate, with like especially like combat sports. Like even though like if I were to go lift, I would take probably three hundred milligrams of caffeine. I don't go over 200 with any kind of rolling because I, I, it's almost like I can't catch my breath or something like my heart rate increases too much. Well, it's a lot different because what are you doing when you're doing a lot of rolling? You're doing a lot of squeeze and hold, squeeze and hold, squeeze and hold. So which induces a lot more. Uh, that's totally anaerobic, yeah. nothing aerobic to it. And it induces much more local acidosis, metabolic acidosis, local in your muscles. And also, so then more ion accumulation, lactic acid accumulation and other things. And at the same time, you, you have a queasy stomach from uh, the high, uh, from the metabolic changes and caffeine in it, whether it's in a pill, a coffee or a Red Bull or some Celsius or some other drink is acidic in nature um, and also can impact uh, 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 your GI tract. So all of that makes sense to me. And the dose could be your friend or it can be your, your poison, right? So just mm-hmm. enough to stimulate you but not to upset you so that you're reactive and proactive. Cool. Well, I know we're rounding out on the end here. Um, so I have, I have one fun question to kind of round this out. Um, you noted at the beginning of the podcast that you used to help out Mikey Musumeshi with his diet. Um, and sure. 
anyone that knows Mikey would want to know how much you had to deal with uh, pasta and pizza and his uh, Italian heritage. I, I, I've heard he travels with Italian pasta with where he goes to. How, how, how fun was that to deal with? I loved it because uh, first, Mikey's enthusiasm for everything he does is infectious. No joke. And the second, because it, it gave me a challenge to say, okay, Mikey wants to eat this. So how am I going to work it out so he gets it? And then we worked out a system where um, every X amount of meals would include a certain amount of pasta or a certain amount of pizza. Right. And that was it. And then he was happy. <laughs> and, and that's all that he, that, you know, you meet a person where they are. So like, for example, I, I years ago, I also worked with, um, uh, when I first started out working with MMA, I worked with Anderson Silva was one of the first clients I worked with. And I didn't mention him uh, yesterday because he had nothing to do with ultimate fighter, but around the same, uh, um, 10 years earlier than that, I worked with Anderson when Anderson went from 185 to 205. Um, I was hired as part of his team, as nutrition team to help him gain that, gain that weight. So it was a lot different. Here was a guy, Anderson's thought was, I know I need calories. I love McDonald's. I'll have McDonald's three times a day, right? And um, I told him that's, um, will definitely gain you weight. will definitely slow you down. And definitely nobody's going to want to be behind you after they pull a stomach roll, right? You know? <laughs> um, so we came to an agreement. Um, there would still be uh, at least one McDonald's meal and one McDonald's related snack per day, every day that was in his meal plan that we utilized so that he could get a little of what he wanted. His people were able to make up the rest of the foods and it kept, kept him happy. And then he went out and just knocked the crap out of Forrest Griffin. If you remember that fight or not. <laughs> yeah. I totally forgot yesterday. I, I actually started off you know, a quick story talking, going back full circle when Joey uh, Antonio and, and Dr. Jeff Stout, when they were earlier in the career, they also co-authored and co-edited a, a sports supplement encyclopedia type of book called Sports Supplements. And I, I authored the chapter on thermogenics because uh, I've done a lot of federal research and other research in that area years ago. And um, so people from Brazil that happened to be um, Anderson's sponsors read it, flew to Miami, came to my office and said, Hey, we want to take you to Brazil can, and we want you to work with one of our athletes. And I said, I asked them who, and they told me, and I said, no brainer. <laughs> and uh, they got me my Brazilian like uh, uh, passport and visa all taken care of in, in like a day. And next thing I know, um, um, you know, in Sao Paulo, uh, 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 funny enough, meeting first the Gracie family and then going to deal with Anderson. Wow. And uh, it, that all started off with, hey, can't I just have McDonald's three times a day? That's going to be 10,000 calories. Like, no, that's 10,000 of the wrong calories. But yes, we could still include it in your plan because it makes you happy and, and, and it won't hurt the ultimate goal. That's you know? awesome. You've worked with so many uh, just incredible people, it seems. I'd love to know, you've gotten inside of a lot of their biometrics and their, their blood markers and everything. How, how much of it is genetic? How much of it is just they are made to be athletes? A large part. I would say maybe even 95%. Uh, um, there was a time that I was also working um, with uh, a group that was called the uh, Oregon Project, which was a Nike, the Nike, um, Nike's elite distance running team. That these people lived up in Beaverton, trained on the Nike training facilities, lived in Nike housing. So Nike bought houses and each room for each athlete 
was uh, modified so that it was uh, um, uh, an altitude room. Because when you live at altitude, what happens is your kidneys produce more uh, um, erythropoietin. And when you get more erythropoietin produced, you have more oxygen carrying red blood cells and, and your hematocrit raises and you have the greater ability to produce energy and do sport. So it's um, people in the drug world would use like Procrit or Epogen uh, to do that. Um, or naturally, you can uh, live high and train low. So you live at altitude and you train normal. But when so you can make an altitude room, uh, you just alter the amount of oxygen and nitrogen in the air. It costs you about $100,000 per room. Um, um, uh, or you could buy an oxygen tent and just sleep in the tent. I one time was working with one of my U.S. Uh, Olympic athletes and the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, shipped to her house um, a, 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 a tent that she would then put her bicycle in and she would do her biking while she was in this, you know, altered altitude tent. And that was one way that we increased her hematocrit levels uh, naturally, which is allowed within sport. So I don't know what brought me to this, but there's a, 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 a lot of... A, a, Fun little tidbits I could tell you from uh, the years that I've worked uh, with athletes and non and non athletes that do athletic things, too. Awesome. Um, yeah. Excellent. This has been awesome. I am I am fresh out of questions. I cannot wait to get this out no, here. I, I got one. Can you guess? <laughs> can you guess? Um, if the glove did not fit, you must acquit. Right. That was mm -hmm. the OJ trial. Yeah. So um, through the people that I've worked with in my career, I ended up working with um, one of the lawyers that was OJ's lawyer, uh, one of the lawyers that was one of his lawyers, right? Uh, a very prominent lawyer that was part of his team. And it was interesting because I was doing some work with Diana Ross, uh, a musician. You may have heard of her, a small little musician in her time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, her manager... Uh, he was college roommates with uh, Bob Shapiro, Robert Shapiro, uh, who is OJ's lawyer. And he, one day he says to me, hey, listen, my whole life, Bob, Bob's been a boxer. Uh, and now he, he, he still likes to compete with the younger guys. And he would go to Freddie Roach's gym and spar. And so then I started working with uh, Bob Shapiro. And I would just keep my mouth like, did the glove really fit? Did it not fit? I wanted to ask so many questions, but I had to concentrate on, on, you know, oats and, or whatever. <laughs> That's a fun one. I was, uh, I was listening to a Jocko podcast last week and they were, they were joking about how, uh, in jujitsu and even a little bit of wrestling, you, you can talk with your partner, but in boxing, you don't talk with your partner. <laughs> no, you don't. Generally, if it is, it's, you're talking smack as they would say, right? You generally don't, you generally don't. Um, I had in, in, yeah, in my uh, two fights ago for me, because I boxed, right? I had somebody that uh, 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 did a, a, what do you call it? Did a foul, right? Not a low blow, but did something where the ref gave him a warning. And right when, and he wanted to start talking to me afterwards, like during it. And I'm like, sorry, that, that Unless you're saying I'm sorry for hitting you wrong, because uh, uh, you're not supposed to hit somebody on their spine, and he punched me on the spine, and then he wanted to do a Muay Thai elbow on my spine, and that's not even right in any boxing match. Uh, um, <laughs> and I was like, you know, like no, we're not here to talk. After the fight, you, you want to say something fine. Now I'm just gonna, you know, sorry I have to break your teeth. 
Well, it's it's been uh, it's been awesome to get to know you better. I, this has been really great. I'm sure we have to do this more. Hope that wasn't overboard. No, no, no. no. This was great. Uh, every story that you brought, I think, is, has been really a lot. Uh, Can I ask yeah. one favor though for for everybody that listens uh, and however you're able to package this? Um, the International Society of Sport Nutrition. Uh, there's the website issn.net uh, where you could find about upcoming conferences. Uh, and we have, uh, I know there's an upcoming conference that is web oriented. So anybody anywhere could join. Uh, we have, of course, our annual in-person conference uh, every June. And there's conferences always added, either like one day regional events, like something, let's say, at Rutgers or something at University of South Carolina um, or at University of uh, Southern California. So we have these one day regional events and the annual conference. And then for the people that also like to read the science if you just Google for Journal of International Society of Sport Nutrition or JISSN, that's where you can get the position stands and every new paper that comes out, you know, every month on applicable sport nutrition or something that you might find of interest. Yes. Mm-hmm. So and I just people wanted can to follow. plug ISSN. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we always like to sign off with how do people follow you. So on Instagram, the underscore ISSN is, uh, is the Instagram. Doug, do you have any personal stuff? LinkedIn, what's your, what do you prefer that I link to in the show notes? We're all also li- linked to those positions. Oh, things. thank you. My LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, we'll get Doug's LinkedIn on there. And um, Yeah, we have it by messaging each other. So you should be able to click my, on my name for messaging, <laughs> I, and then you have my LinkedIn. I would say LinkedIn and maybe Twitter, which is Doug Kalman, PhD, RD. Doug's cool. LinkedIn is a, is a must follow for anyone that's interested mm-hmm. in supplements. I mean, uh, thank you, you. you bring a lot of information, like just, I, you find stuff in like the nutrition world, in the food world. You bring a lot of stuff that's very like adjacent to supplements that I wouldn't have personally caught. I, I find so many, like, like what you're saying, parallels and other topics that have been help, helpful a lot. You know, I've been curiously fascinated by the statistic of 30 to 50% of pregnant women are iron deficient and don't know it. And how that is, I know it has nothing to do with sport nutrition, but yet for females it does. And uh, because pregnancy bearing years, they can be physically active, bodybuilding, do whatever. But like, how is that so overlooked? I'm just like, so you're going to see a theme probably on my LinkedIn. Like, what could we do to change? Because when, when, when a woman is iron insufficient or deficient, of course, the offspring is affected because the baby takes the nutrients first but iron is so needed for brain development and even eye eye development but for brain development that studies show that when a woman or a baby is iron deficient that their cognitive function can be delayed by five to 23 years to catch up to normal wow Mm. so like you could be we could have no choice of ours moms could have never ate red meat could have been a vegan was iron deficient, didn't know it, was just thought it was a lethargy of pregnancy and depression of being fat or whatever, you know, something has a kid. And now your brain development is delayed because in utero, you didn't get the iron and 30 to 50% of women have this issue. Yeah. So I don't know. You might see a theme somehow. I don't know how, where, but. Looking forward to it. That's interesting. And the other thing, just I'm sorry to give you one other thing is I have a big area that I've been, um, I teach a nutrition neuroscience course. So um, in this course, there's another, the, the field of cognitive sport nutrition is one that I speak at a lot of conferences about because what, what precursors are needed for your brain, for neurotransmitters, for everything to occur, like which B vitamins are used, which amino acids, oh, you're dieting. No wonder why you're in a bad mood. 
you're not getting enough tyrosine. You're not getting enough phenylalanine. You're not getting enough. So one day we can revisit how what you eat affects your mood and your quality of life. You know, these kind of things. Yeah, it's really real. Yeah, full, full. Anytime you like, if you publish a new paper and you want to just dive into that for 30, 40 minutes, like that one paper or something like that, that could be a good time to come back if there's a specific topic. Like, this has been a great <laughs> overview. I think we've, we focused a lot on the fighting stuff. There's obviously so much more. It's so, more fun. Yeah, the, the invitation <laughs> is definitely open. Um, I, I give, good luck to Ben for finding some good clips to put on Instagram because I, uh, I have like 20 of them in my head. Oh, so we, I have, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I do have a paper coming out that will be quite boring but might be useful. It's on comparing the regulatory status of supplements, uh, uh, US versus uh, Euro, uh, EFSA or European Union. That'll and, be good to um, be able to reference though when we do stuff. So, did, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll share, I'll share it with you when, um, when it's published. Mark Talon, another, a brilliant guy from the UK, and I put it together. Cool. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Excellent. So, all right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank you, being Thank your you guest. so much, Doug.